Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. I'm a nostalgic person. People who have visited me in the home studio know that I'm nostalgic because I'm surrounded by memorabilia, artifacts, reminders, things that are sentimental to me. A Durham Bulls jersey that my dad wore in the 1960s behind me on the wall. A sport coat that my grandfather used to wear, and he had told me once upon a time, I want to go to Kentucky Derby sometime with you. I want to go to Churchill Downs. My grandfather never made it there. He was in his 90s. He passed away, age of 94. I got his sport coat when they were cleaning out his closet. I hung it on the wall here. But I got to tell you, when I went to cover the Kentucky Derby, I packed it. I wore it into Churchill Downs. I had a little glassy eye when I did that. I'm nostalgic, I'm trying to tell you. Legacy matters. Matters to me. Maybe it matters to you. It matters to a lot of sports athletes as well. We have the Baseball Hall of Fame. Big controversy when somebody isn't allowed into the Hall of Fame. Oh, it affects their legacy, we say. Pro Football Hall of Fame. The Basketball Hall of Fame. We are nostalgic as a society. I think in part that's why we keep stats and we say things like greatest right-handed hitter in the history of baseball, more home runs, more strikeouts, best passer. We're nostalgic. Is Phil Mickelson nostalgic? Does he care about legacy? Lefty has 45 wins on the PGA Tour. He has six major championships, three Masters titles, two PGA championships. Hell, I was there at Augusta National in 2004 when Phil Mickelson won his first major with a birdie on the final hole to win by a stroke over Ernie Els. I remember that. Mickelson was in his 30s. Mickelson won $1.17 million. I've never seen a human being in person, an athlete, as happy as Phil Mickelson was that day when he won at Augusta. I was there. I saw it. It was cool. Now Phil Mickelson's legacy is what? He has joined the LIV golf event. We're going to watch him play in a U.S. Open this week. But what is his legacy? Is it tarnished forever? Is it improved in some of your eyes? I don't know. Is it, is it, it, is it not improved in some of your eyes? I was talking with a good friend of mine today just a few minutes ago about Phil Mickelson's legacy, and it got me thinking. I left the conversation going, you know, I don't know that I'm ever going to think about Phil Mickelson ever again without thinking about him jumping ship, selling out, becoming part of the LIV Golf Invitational Tournament, the problems he had with gambling, the problems he's had with the PGA Tour, the things that he said. All of that stuff is going to occur to me before I think about the 2004 Masters Tournament. And i got to be honest, 
back in the day in 04, that's all I was thinking about. And, and for about 15 years, when I thought about Phil Mickelson, I didn't think about his other major wins. I didn't think about his career earnings. I didn't really think of him as a gambler, even though I knew that he was gambling. I knew he went to college at Arizona State, but I never thought about that. But, but uh, you know, it was the 2004 win at Augusta because the narrative on Phil Mickelson's career as he was trying to get that first major was that he had a little tin cup to his game. In fact, he had a non-speaking role in the movie Tin Cup in 1996. And it was interesting to watch him struggle to break through. He was a top 10 finisher. He was a guy who flirted around with it. But he would take a shot invariably. He would go for it on, you know, a par 5 instead of laying up. And he'd end up in the water or the sand or he'd hit the ball into the, into the rough. And he would end up, you know, falling a stroke or two behind the winner. Old Lefty finally broke through in 2004, and it was really cool to see that. Like, it was a lot of people thinking, like, this guy is going to win for a long time at a high level. He has had collapses in his career. He's had victories in his career. But I challenge you when it comes to Phil Mickelson to think about anything other than the fact that he has abandoned the PGA Tour and gone off to play in this LIV Golf Invitational, and now he's playing in the U.S. Open this week, and, you know, it is clouding the discussion. And I agree with the golfers who are annoyed that this thing is, this, this narrative is clouding the discussion, but I don't blame the media members for asking about it. I blame golfers like Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson who, 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 who participated in a money grab and now would probably prefer that we continue to talk about golf. Let's, hey, let's keep the questions to golf. I've been in on a number of news conferences over the years where it was uncomfortable. I've been into news conferences where, you know, people had NCAA uh, violations that were looming. I've been in news conferences with coaches that, you know, their job status was up in the air, and in fact it was very unlikely that they would return in their current role. I've been around news conferences where people had done uh, horrible things, made bad trades, uh, been suspended, uh, you know, lost big games, and, you know, often those things can get uncomfortable. But in no setting have I ever been asked to, like, not ask a question. You know, the closest it came was probably when Chip Kelly was facing a show-cause penalty from the NCAA over his dealings with Willie Lyles, and he went to a Pac-12 media day. And the Pac-12 media reps were told, not to allow media members to talk about the show cause thing, and we did it anyway, and they eventually said, all right, we need to keep the questions to media day. Uh, I thought it was kind of silly, but it, it wasn't like Chip Kelly or anybody else didn't understand why we were asking. It wasn't like these golfers on the tour now should be uh, confused about why people are asking. I want to talk about the legacy of Phil Mickelson in particular. What is it? What is it in your mind? How has it changed in the last few weeks? Uh, left-handed golfer who, you know, will uh, be a Hall of Famer, no doubt, 57 professional wins, uh, a guy who uh, won 45 on the PGA Tour. He's got the majors. He's, uh, you know, won the Masters three times. Uh, you talk about U.S. Open titles. You talk about Masters titles. You talk about PGA championships. He's got six major victories. But what is, in your mind, 
the legacy of Phil Mickelson. 503-417-7575 is the number. we got a great show today. Tim Donahue will be joining us, former NBA official who was at the center of the scandal that rocked, uh, you know, the referees and rocked the NBA. Tim Donahue, until 2007, was a golden boy by NBA standards. But he resigned from the league in the summer of 07 after the FBI started investigating allegations that he bet on games that he officiated in. And in fact, they accused him of wagering on games in his last two seasons. They claimed that he made calls that affected the point spread in those games. Donahue pled guilty to two federal charges. He went to federal prison. He served 11 months in Pensacola, Florida, and then went to a halfway house. He's joining the show today in about 20 minutes. He's going to talk about the NBA playoffs. We're going to talk about what happened, what went wrong, what, what was it like for him to be in prison, what is he doing now. We'll talk about all of that with Tim Donahue, who has uh, pointed a finger back at the NBA. He says he was not alone, that the NBA uh, knew that uh, you know, the NBA knew what it was doing when it was assigning certain officials to certain games or directing the officials and steering them or nudging them in a direction that the league wanted. Uh, Donahue wrote a memoir. It's called Blowing the Whistle. We had him on uh, you know, after he came out of prison. We had him on. He talked about the underworld. He talked about betting and wagering in sports. And he, uh, he you know, raised some interesting questions. We'll talk to Don He coming up at 3.30. Let's go to the phone lines. Erickson Lake Oswego is going to lead us off. L-I-V, Phil Mickelson's Hi, legacy. What's up, Eric? Hi. I, I, you know what? Yep, you, you touched upon it, but kind of threw it away. I don't think it can be underestimated the amount of Mickelson's gambling debt or his compulsion as a gambler. And his mind, he's already shown this willingness to throw tens of millions away gambling. I think this guy in a, in a wise guy movie would be called a degenerate gambler. Hence, I think that's where his head has gone. That, that, that to me, seems to be a, uh, a, a, a popular candidate for a motivation for doing what he's doing. Yeah, and, and you may be right. You know what? You just made me think of something, Eric. I want to ask Tim Donahue. What he thinks of Mickelson and the gambling issues we see around Mickelson, Donahue knows better than than anybody. When you get involved in things maybe you shouldn't be involved in, how that can bleed into your professional life. I'll ask him if he believes that Phil Mickelson's desperation or this move with the LAV tournament could be connected to his gambling debts. Tony's in Oregon City. Tony, what's Phil Mickelson's legacy? Hi, John. Uh Gosh, you know, I struggle with that. Um, I like Lefty. Um, I have more of a concern on if it wasn't for the fact that Saudi Arabia was supporting this and some some other billionaire group was that had no no um, issues with anybody, and they were just someone that wanted to compete against the PGA, and it's called capitalism. But only if it was that circumstance where I, yeah. I have a sour taste in my mouth with the Saudi Arabia. I love the golfers. I got no problem with Greg Norman. I got no problem with Lefty. I got no problem with the guys going for a money grab. Isn't that why we play golf? Thanks, John. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, 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 uh, I'm conflicted, too, because there's part of me that if this were a football league, 
and it was a competing football league, I'd say the market won't lie to us. The market's going to tell us whether or not this thing should exist, right? Famous, uh, famous mantra, the market doesn't lie. But the involvement politically of the Saudi government makes me uncomfortable. And there's two elements to it. One of them is the human rights violations and the human rights record of Saudi Arabia. Second issue, though, is local. And it, it, I don't think people outside of you and I are going to understand this. There are two high-profile cases in which Saudi citizens were accused of crimes. One of them was a student at Portland State who was run down on Hawthorne, run over, killed. And the Saudi citizen was arrested and was going to face a trial and a jury and justice. Probably would have ended up with a manslaughter charge. Who knows? But the Saudi government extricated their citizen under the cover of night, helped them get out of the United States so they wouldn't have to face criminal prosecution. I'm not comfortable with that. And, and in some ways, I don't know publicly if I can say this without taking some grief, but in some ways I think more about that than I do about the general human rights issues in Saudi Arabia because that happened here. And now I see Pumpkin Ridge Golf Club, a golf club and a golf course that I had no beef with, that I played a few times in my time here in the state of Oregon. No plenty of members out there. You know, when I, I, I've been out to Pumpkin Ridge plenty of times, seen some great events there. But I'm tremendously disappointed that the LIV Golf Tournament is going to use our region of the country. It's going to use that course. It's going to use it like a tissue paper, blow its nose, throw it away. And the money for that tournament is going to a corporation in Texas. It's not going to benefit anybody here. So we're just being used. And there's part of that that bothers me on a deeper, more fundamental level than anything. And I think the caller is right. Like if this were just, you know, Phil Knight's launching a golf tour, uh, you know, Judah Newby, you know, is throwing hundreds of millions of dollars and he wants to launch a golf tour and compete with the PGA. I'm interested in seeing what happens. But I'm not uncomfortable with the event going on and I don't feel like we're being used. The legacy of Phil Mickelson, Judah Newby. What is the legacy of Phil Mickelson? It's completely turned on its head in one year for me. Um, my wife is not a big sports fan, but we watched the entire final round of the uh, PGA Championship last year um, that was played in South Carolina, and Phil won it at 50 years old. Flocks of people, just thousands of people following him down 17, down 18. I got a little teary-eyed. Like, it was an insane scene. Um, and he won. He was the oldest major winner ever at 50 to win that major. And my wife and I sat there and watched the whole thing. And at this point, I he's done irreparable damage to his reputation in my eyes. And uh, I think the gambling debts is fascinating. I think that's plausible to be primary motivation. And it yeah. also fits with his personality. But to me, JC, it couldn't be more stark. It's been a 180-degree turn for me because, you know, if we talk legacy, for me it helps to say, all right, what are the first five lines of a guy's legacy? What's on right. line one, line two, line three? And at this moment, for me, Phil Mickelson, line one of his legacy, money grab with Saudi Arabian-funded LIV golf. Line two 
is U.S. Open failure, failures. And it's sad to say, but I kind of hope he misses the cut this week. Um, I, I hope he does poorly. I'm rooting against him. Um, yeah, he's done that. And, and But, yeah, winged foot, 18, right? That's the only major he has not won is the U.S. Open. I, I, I'll be <laughs> – I hope he does poorly this week. Um, and line, line three of his legacy, I guess, is that he, you know, the back and forth with Shipnuck in the book – and line four is he had a good Instagram game for about two years. Yeah. Talking about his seeds and his calves, and he was so likable. And then line five is probably 2004 Masters, like you were saying. But outside of that, to me, it's it's negative points against him. Line one, line two, line three. I used to like Phil Mickelson. I used to root for Phil Mickelson. Now I find myself uh, kind of shaking my head. What's Mickelson's legacy in your eyes? 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. What's Lefty's legacy or what's left of Lefty's legacy? You tell me in your mind, Phil Mickelson and his legacy. I'm left thinking about it this week and, you know, I don't. I don't dislike Phil Mickelson, but I I think he's he's crushed his legacy. But what do you think? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Tim Donahue, former NBA official, coming up bottom of the hour. We're going to do some ticket giveaways for Worlds of Sport on today's show, so I want you here for that. Let's go to the phone lines. Mark is in Portland. Mark, welcome. Hey, how you doing? I, I'm for good. me... With Phil Mickelson, it's it's kind of like the Pete Rose thing. I mean, <laughs> there uh, Mickelson's a great golfer. I mean, six major championships. How many guys have won over five major titles? You know, historically. So you got to give him credit. Uh, you know, he's the oldest uh, guy to ever win a major, but uh, he definitely took the easy way out. I mean, I think Rory McIlroy said it best. And but I think. Uh, a little bit, we're we're kind of making a little bit too much of it. We should be talking about the U.S. Open. I would bet yep. that all those guys uh, that switch, not one of them's in the top ten in this U.S. Open. I I might be wrong. Dustin Johnson, you know, he can every ten tournaments. It's, it seems like lately he'll get hot. But the the main guys are still in the PGA. I mean, um, that and that's what I'm looking forward to uh, is is the is the PGA and the U.S. Open. And uh, this weekend, Father's Day, and watching a, a great golf tournament. I just, I think we should stop giving these guys any stage. And it, yeah. it's like when Steve Young switched to the USFL. I mean, even that didn't, didn't, you know, dent the NFL. And I, I think, I, I don't want to make the similarities with two different sports, but they have yet to, to get, you know, Phil Mickelson's the highest profile person. But they, if, if they don't get Tiger Woods, getting an aging player like that without getting Tiger Woods is irrelevant. Until they get some of these young guns, it's not going to affect the PGA at all. Appreciate the call. I also think it's really interesting. We saw, like, you know, a week ago, they, the tour organizers, the LIV tour organizers, they, they kind of threw Greg Norman under the bus a little bit. I don't know if anybody caught it, but it was – you know, more or less, they they reprimanded Norman for speaking out of school, and those who are paying clear, careful attention to this are speculating 
that the LIV will remove Norman as soon as they can without people knowing it, like months from now. Because I think he was a poor choice for them because he's such a polarizing guy. But Mark's right. Like, it's, it is a disservice to the U.S. Open that we're talking about this. By the way, 19 golfers in history have won five or more majors. Um, I can name them all. I don't know if we want that. But it ranges from Seve Ballesteros to Lee Trevino to Nick Faldo, Bobby Jones, Tom Watson, Gary Player, Ben Hogan, Walter Hagen, Tiger Woods, Jack Nicholas, Phil Mickelson among them. Scott's in Portland. What's Phil Mickelson's legacy in your mind, Scott? Yeah, I'm not understanding this. Uh, so somebody wants to go out and work for a different job, different tour, and they're being villainized for that? Well, I think it's the, con- it's the connection to the Saudi government. Well, whatever. That, I mean, that's just politics, whatever. Ah, no, I don't know if it's politics. I mean, did you hear the beginning of the show, or are you just tuning in? I'm just tu- tuning yeah. in, but I've heard this before. I, I don't, I don't, I just don't agree that these guys are being treated this way because they want to go play on a different tour. I, I just, I just don't agree. Yeah. I understand that, and, and look, I'm not here to, I'm not going to bang on you for it, but I think that part of the discomfort is rooted in the fact that in Saudi Arabia, you, you've got a government that is is terrible, treats people horribly, mutilates women, um, beheads people, um, uh, killed an American journalist from the Washington Post, assassinated him. Uh, Even locally in our region, I pointed out at the top of the show, two cases, one that just breaks my heart, it's, you know, there's a family in the Portland area who had a daughter who was walking on Hawthorne Boulevard. She was run down by a Saudi citizen who ran her over and killed her. And... The family lost their daughter, and the Saudi citizen was arrested and charged and was facing a uh, possible manslaughter conviction or second-degree this or that, and instead the Saudi government uh, extricated that person out of the country. Now, I don't blame people for being uncomfortable with that. And I think if this weren't related to the Saudi government's uh, attempt to sort of sports wash their image – then I don't think anybody would have a, have a difficult time with it. I do think we would all be viewing it as capitalism. I mean, I think that point has been made by several people who have called in. But, I, I look, I'm not alone in going, gosh, I will never think of Phil Mickelson uh, as the winner of the 2004 Masters, and that's it. I will think of Phil Mickelson. I will think of gambling debts. I will, think, I will wonder about his involvement in this tournament. I will wonder why it wasn't enough for him to have, you know, 70 or 80 million in career earnings and, you know, did he did he even hesitate as he took that 200 million dollar payday from the Saudi uh, sovereign wealth fund and I think it's rooted 100% in that. And I get people who will say, "Hey, look, uh, you know, we were reliant upon Saudi oil." But I don't know anybody who goes to the gas station and says, "You know what? Uh, I'll fill it up with the Saudi gas." You don't have a choice. You go to the gas station. You don't have a choice. You get on a plane. And and we pointed this out, I think, in the last few weeks, too, for people who are going, hey, it's hypocritical to single them out. I think you have to, on a case-by-case basis, stand either for or against you know, the things that you want to do. Are you eating at that restaurant or not? Are you uh, befriending that person or not? It's a case-by-case situation. And in this case, I think it's just it's too hot for me. And I'm not comfortable with it. And I wish it weren't connected to the 
sovereign wealth fund of a country that's got a terrible record when it comes to human rights. And I wish the NBA weren't in China and relying upon China. And I wish that, uh, I wish that in our country we did a better job with uh, you know, helping people, uh, you know, make it, you know, American families are hurting and look at them, look at inflation, look at the stock market, look at, look at what we've been, we've been talking about economically in our country in the last couple of few weeks. Um, I think it's, we got a lot of problems here too, but you want to give me Phil Mickelson's legacy clean. Uh, you're going to have to do it without attaching it to the Saudi sovereign wealth fund. Tim Donahue, former NBA official coming up, leave it here. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. NBA playoffs are on. Uh, we're watching the Warriors and the Celtics. Why is it that I feel like Boston will win game six and that this series will go seven? Well, I've been watching the NBA for a while. Our next guest, longtime NBA referee, Tim Donahue officiated in the NBA until 2007 when he resigned from the league. He was accused by the FBI of betting on games that he officiated in his last two seasons. He pled guilty to two federal charges related to the investigation. He was sentenced to 15 months in prison, served 11 months in Pensacola, Florida. He's written a book. If you are interested in his book, uh, Tim Donahue wrote a fantastic book. I think you can learn a lot about the NBA and officiating. I think he's got a story to tell. And he's joined us uh, several other times, and he's welcome back here, Tim Donahue. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, John. Thanks for having me again. Long time uh, to uh, catch back up with you. Yeah, and I love getting you on because I think you can help people sort of understand the NBA of your era, what they're seeing now. Uh, the way games are officiated, and, and you have, I think, great context and great perspective. And let, let's see now, how much are you watching right now, and, and how different does the game look from the basketball that you were officiating in, from 94 to 07? You know, it's pretty much the same. I, I do watch it from time to time. I'm on the East Coast, and it's tough to stay up uh, for those late hours. Uh, you know, I watch the whole game, but I catch up with it the next day, and uh, you know, it, it's something that's very similar to, uh, you know, what it was back when I was there, uh, you know, through 2007. When you were back uh, officiating, and we've talked about this before, help us understand, like, you know, the, the way that the league assigned officials or maybe offered you input, the, the idea that the league was steering, you know, uh, officiating and, and causing longer series and therefore making more money, how real was that? Oh, 100% real, John. Uh, we talked about it many times, and I've talked about it, uh, you know, at length in the book, Personal Foul, to where, uh, you know, when a series was 2-0, uh, 2-1, 3-1, uh, the league officials would come in, and they'd put you in a hotel room, and they'd, uh, you know, have you watch several plays in the game and tell you that the prior officials missed these plays, and they wanted you to get them right, and they always went, uh, you know, for the team that was down in the series or against the team that was up in the series. And with that being said, it put the team that was, uh, you know, up in the series at a disadvantage. And, uh, you know, it got those series to the point where it went from 2-1, 3-1 uh, to 3-2, 3-3. And, and 
put it in a situation where there were more playoff games for that specific series and more money was generated for the league. Give me an idea of, you know, because that, that is a really interesting way for the league to kind of frame it because if, you know, for example, in this Boston-Golden State series, I could see, you know, if the league got the officials together and said, hey, we really need to watch the, the screens that Golden State's setting. Those are, those are illegal screens. All of a sudden, Golden State's offense is disrupted. Absolutely. One of the uh, best examples I can give, which is, uh, you know, very well known, was that Houston-Dallas, where uh, back in the uh, uh, early 2000s, Houston was um, uh, ahead in the series two games to none, and they won the first two games on Dallas's floor. Series moved back to Houston, and all of a sudden a league came in, and I think I was a, an alternate official uh, for the game three in the series, and they came in and just said, how Yao Ming was setting illegal screens, how Yao Ming was getting the ball and walking in the post, and they really wanted the officials to crack down on these specific situations. And with that, uh, you know, the, the officials went out and, and cracked down on those things, and the series went from 2-1 uh, to 2-2, and, and eventually it was a seven-game series, and Dallas ended up winning it because of the complaints that Mark Cuban filed with the league office. So... Uh, you know, there's always a situation where both teams are complaining, but when you put those referees in that hotel room and start showing them plays, the league wants, uh, you know, the plays to be called that are going to basically extend the series, and that's what they tell the referees to concentrate on. And it's very important with that because as a referee, you want to have the best grade that you can get because you want to advance, uh, you know, into the next round of playoffs, which is an enormous amount of money for the referees. That's fascinating. Tim Donahue is with us. The you know the idea that we're, we're I think people are always skeptical of the officiating, and you were in the middle of it at that time. But the idea that you were the lone assassin is never sat well with me. I know it doesn't sit well with you, but you know how, how is that? How do you frame that as you look back in history and you look at that era of the NBA? You know, it's very disturbing for me, and I'll tell you why. I knew what I did was wrong. Uh, I wanted to accept responsibility for that. I felt by, uh, you know, doing that that the NBA was also going to accept responsibility for their part in it. I had my attorney call the NBA league office and say, you know, let's sit down, let's go over this so that, uh, you know, some way something positive can come from this. And they wanted nothing to do with me, and I just felt like, uh, you know, David Stern was uh, an arrogant jerk-off when it came to the whole situation, wanted to put me in a, in a corner and, and say that I was responsible for everything, when, when in fact uh, there was a lot of culpability that uh, could have gone around, and if they would have admitted that, uh, I think it would have uh, come across much better than uh, the way it did come out. We're talking to Tim Donahue, former NBA official. The You know, the moment where you kind of lost your way, can you pinpoint it? pinpoint it or is it a series of things that uh, resulted in you placing wagers on games no I think it's a, it's a series of things I I definitely um, you know made some poor choices big mistakes uh, you know um, cost myself a, a lot you know my freedom uh, my profession my family uh, something I'm definitely not uh, you know um, happy about but uh, again, you know, I made some poor choices, which I think most of us do in life. Some are not uh, put out there for the world to see, but but mine were. And 
you know, I just got hooked on gambling and, and enjoyed gambling a lot, whether it was on the golf course, uh, at the casinos, or betting on professional sporting events, which uh, eventually spilled over to uh, sporting events that I refereed and, uh, you know, very embarrassing for me and my family, especially my father, who was a longtime college basketball referee. And, you know, with that being said, it was a, a total disaster and, and it cost me everything. When you, the games that you officiated that, that you changed outcomes on or you, uh, how did you do that? How, how uh, noticeable was that to people watching games? You know, I think what I did was is I just uh, emphasized the things that the NBA wanted us to call, and uh, I knew that the team was going to be put at an advantage or a disadvantage, whether it was a regular season game or a playoff game. And uh, with that being said, I would look in the USA Today and, and see the line and, and notice that uh, there was a major disadvantage for one team or another, and I passed that information along to people that were associated with organized crime. I was able to pick these games at 80, 85% correct uh, during playoff time at an even higher percentage and put millions of dollars into the coffers of people associated with organized crime, and that's why the FBI got involved. Were you nervous and scared? You know, the people you're dealing with, it, it's out of like a movie, you know? Was there any part of you that went, hey, I'm, I'm interacting here with, with people that maybe I shouldn't be interacting with? You know, I don't think at the time, uh, you know, but as, uh, you know, the investigation uh, started and I was in the office of the FBI and, and sat in with several FBI agents and several United States attorneys, uh, you know, it, it rang home that, uh, you know, I was in a lot of trouble. And, and I think uh, the, the thing that really put it on a, a table for me was when the FBI agents offered me the witness protection program. And, and that was something where I remember leaving that meeting saying, you know, I'm in much further than I ever anticipated that this would go. Tim Donahue is with us. I, I got to admit, I, I saw Phil, Phil Mickelson and the story about his gambling debt, and I wondered, I wonder what Donahue thinks of this. Do you think Mickelson's behavior with the LIV tour and, and the money he's taking, I mean, is there any part of you that wondered, like, how, you know, do you see a gambling problem with Phil Mickelson? Oh, no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, the guy that he was involved with and uh, – Billy Walters was his name, was a guy that was uh, wagering millions and millions of dollars on the games that I was giving to the people, uh, you know, that I was speaking to. So, uh, you know, you know, do I think that he has a major gambling problem? Absolutely. I think when you talk about somebody losing $5 million gambling, uh, you know, it, it's something where uh, he's in a position where he can't control it. And, you know, hopefully he gets that under control, which, uh, you know, it's something that's very important not only for him but for his family. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times in sports we we are uh, trained to look for conspiracies. We're talking to Tim Donahue. The, uh, the, the league as a whole in the time that you were in it was a fun time to watch basketball. Aside from the gambling and the stuff everybody always wants to talk with you about, I want to know what it was like to call games that Michael Jordan was playing in. Oh, unbelievable. I mean, you would uh... – be at a game where you knew you were going to officiate him, there would be a whole different buzz in the arena when you would walk into it, whether it was a home or away game. Uh, he's uh, somebody that brought a lot of, uh, you know, reaction from the fans, whether it was a home or away game. And 
he uh, he turned the NBA uh, into a situation where uh, everybody wanted to watch it again as, as Michael uh, Jordan started to take over from Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. So uh, he definitely brought uh, global attention to the game, and, and he made it into what it is today. Tim, did the game that you see today more or less physical than the game maybe when you came in as a rookie official in in the 90s? You know, it's funny that you bring that up. I know that's a, a big question that's out in the media today. And, um, you know, it, it definitely was physical when I came in in 94, 95, uh, you know, with uh, Bill Lane Beer and the Detroit Pistons and Pat Riley and the New York Knicks. And what the league did was, they saw that, you know, there wasn't an open uh, concept to the game where the scores were in the hundreds, they were in the 80s or 90s, and it was something that the fans didn't want. So they wanted that free-flow moving basketball, and they put in a lot of, uh, you know, new rules that allow for that freedom of movement in the paint and up and down the floor to try to bring back, uh, you know, that game where you had the scores up into the, you know, 110s and 120s, which was more exciting for the fans and more exciting for TV viewership. The, you know, the games that you called as an official, give us an idea when you're in a big playoff game, adrenaline in the arena, home crowd, both teams, you know, really playing at the highest level, maybe a finals or a, or a, uh, you know, a conference finals matchup, you know, how difficult, is that more difficult or easier to call those games or different than maybe calling an early season game? You know, it's definitely more difficult because any mistake is magnified, uh, you know, tremendously, and there's more TV cameras there. The fans are more in tune to, to what's going on. So any little mistake can, can cost the team a game. So your level of concentration has to be, uh, you know, at the top of your game. And, and the last thing you want to do is, is be in the middle of a, a sports center episode where they're talking about the referees and a call that you made that affected the outcome of the game. So, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, as the playoffs went from round one, two, three, and into the finals, uh, it's something that you have to be, uh, you know, on the top of your game and make sure that mistakes weren't made. I talked uh, with Bob Delaney once upon a time about, you know, superstar treatment or star treatment in the league. And, and uh, you know, I want to know from your standpoint, that you know how is that an unspoken thing or are the officials talking about it before the game or what does a player need to do to get star treatment where do you stand on that you know definitely star treatment was uh you know a part of the game and we used to talk about it in the locker room and at halftime and even during timeouts on the floor during the game when a, a star player like lebron james kobe Bryant, michael jordan had two or three fouls the last thing you want to do is call a foul to send him to the bench where, you know, people paid thousands of dollars to sit in that arena to come see that person. So with that being said, the last thing you want to do is call a foul on him uh, to send him to the bench. So we would talk about if there's another player in the vicinity of that star player, give that foul to that person so that he can stay in the game. It's fantastic. I, I mean, I just think, you know, if you told that to, like, you know, somebody who never saw a basketball game, they'd say that makes no sense, but it makes it makes all the sense in the world because we're really talking about entertainment, aren't we? Absolutely. And, in fact, when I was sitting with the FBI agents and they did their investigation, they were, uh, you know, in shock at the things that I was telling them, and they were mortified. 
And after they did the investigation, they came back to me and they said, Tim, we believe everything you said. This is wrong. But if you look um, at the end of a game, it says NBA, a form of entertainment. So basically that's the same thing that pro wrestling puts at the end of their matches. People may not think that they're similar in that way, but legally wise, you know, the NBA can do anything they want and not be brought up on charges because basically it's, they're saying it's a form of entertainment. Give me a guy that you officiated that you just love to officiate his games and, you know, maybe gave you respect or played the game the right way, and just because of it, it was a more joyful assignment for you. You know, when everybody asks me that question, I always talk about David Robinson because I was in my first or second year, and, uh, you know, when you're an official in your first or second year, you're very nervous. You want to get the plays right. Everybody's always coming after you. And he took a shot, and I got caught standing behind him, and I couldn't see the fact that somebody hit him on his elbow. Uh, timeout was called, and he gave me a little bit of a hard time. Walked to the bench after the timeout. He came up to me, and he said, you know, I got hit. And I said, well, listen, I apologize to you. I got caught in the stack. I didn't see what happened. And, you know, hopefully I won't miss it again. And instead of giving me more grief, he basically tapped me on the back and said, hey, I appreciate that. Hopefully it won't happen again. And I think those guys that, you know, realize that you're not going to get every play right are guys that you – learn to respect and, and try to make sure that you don't ever miss a call for them because, uh, you know, they're not the guys that are being complete jerk-offs to you. Is there a player that's difficult to officiate just because of the style of their game? You know, definitely when, when I was there and, uh, you know, I think back, Shaquille O'Neal was somebody that was difficult uh, to officiate because he was so uh, aggressive on both ends and, when he was in the post, he would swing his elbows, and he was so big and strong and powerful, uh, you know, he could knock somebody over much easier than somebody else would. So he was he was definitely somebody which is, was tough to determine as whether it was an offensive foul or it wasn't something that you should let go or call. So he was he was a guy that was tough to officiate. You miss it, Tim Donahue? Absolutely. I mean, if I told you I was lying uh, – I think I'd be telling you I was lying if I told you I didn't miss it. You know, you're running up and down the court with the greatest athletes in the world and in front of 20, 25,000 people. The excitement that you can get from that is, is something that, uh, you know, is, is, is definitely missable. Tim Donahue, you know, I know you're fresh off a of knee surgery, so I appreciate you uh, giving us your time. Uh, the book, Personal Foul, check it out. Donahue wrote it uh, several years ago. We had him on when it first came out. If you haven't read it yet, pick it up. Tim Donahue, thank you for joining us. Get well. John, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right, there he is, former NBA official Tim Donahue. Love hearing from him, love getting that perspective. And i got to be honest, when I watch NBA playoff games even now, I wonder about the things that Tim Donahue says. And I wonder uh, how much the league will play a role or human nature will play a role in the Boston Celtics possibly winning Game 6 and forcing a Game 7, which is sure to attract a huge TV audience. Uh, more commercials, more revenue. I'm told $7 million a game these playoff games are worth. A, a, a Game 7 might be worth more. Leave it here. you got the bald-faced truth. Our big splash is coming up.
Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Worlds of Sport coming up this weekend at the Oregon Convention Center. I have a four-pack of tickets, courtesy of Dutch Bros. 503-417-7575 is the number. If you get put on hold, stay on hold. You may be a winner. Yesterday, somebody who was going to be one of the winners was on hold and then got taken off hold or hung up. I don't know what they did. But if you want to go see Worlds of Sport this weekend, you want to bring your family, we have two-day passes, courtesy of Dutch Bros. We have four of them uh, for a family of four. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Sean will pick the winner, and you'll get to go to Worlds of Sport. What is Worlds of Sport? Well, thank you for asking. It's all your favorite brands. It's all your favorite teams. It's all your favorite athletes under one roof at the Oregon Convention Center. If you go to worldsofsport.com, you can see more. But we're talking about eSports and the Blazers and the Timbers and the Thorns and the Winterhawks and the Hops and Oregon and Oregon State and uh, members of the United States Women's National Soccer Team and Portland Thorns forward Morgan Weaver and Anthony Newman and Alex Molden, former NFL players, and Jaden Grant from Oregon State and Keith Brown from Oregon and Daly McClellan from Oregon and a whole bunch of others under one roof. A lot of giveaways, great Father's Day weekend event worldsofsport.com for tickets. Judah Newby, what did you think of Tim Donahue's interview? It is fascinating, you know, and I think the seeds of what he still alleges is happening in the NBA is real. I, you know, the seeds, the human factor of officiating games is definitely real. I don't think it's as, as explicit as it was when he was officiating, but yeah. he always reveals some interesting stuff. Uh, fascinating character. I wonder when I hear Tim Donahue talking, you know, of course there's some part of him that doesn't want it to be limited to just him. I don't believe for a second that he was the only official in the NBA that was influencing the outcome of games. I think there's probably some truth in what he's saying, just like with Jose Canseco and others. But, man, it's fascinating. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Like, I don't think for a minute that it would surprise anyone if we found out Phil Mickelson was in a tremendous amount of gambling debt and part of him jumping on to this new tour and taking the money was about that. I'm sure it would not help his image. I'm sure that people would wonder, you know, about his life and his lack of discipline and all that. But it would make sense of it, at least. I also am certain that if it came out that we had another Tim Donahue situation in the NBA, and there were officials who were steering the outcome of games, or the league was uh, influencing the outcome of games, as Donahue allege, alleges happened during his era, 94 to 2007. I don't think we'd be surprised either. But what other sport do you think is most likely to have and a scandal of the Tim Donahue magnitude? Meaning what other sport 
presents itself in a way that would be easy for an official to influence the outcome of the game and there'd be plausible deniability well i don't know about you but i'm thinking about major league baseball's strike zone i don't know why the umpires in major league baseball behind home plate look so lost this season i don't know if it's always been that way and we're just seeing more of it because now they're superimposing that rectangular box that shows us the strike zone or maybe officials, you know, maybe they've just always been bad behind home plate. We never noticed before. There was no TikTok. There was no Instagram reel. There was no Twitter where we watched it 24-7. But the players seem much more vocal about the bad calls in Major League Baseball, balls and strikes in particular in the early part of this season, than maybe at any other point I can remember in MLB history. What is that about in your mind, Judah? What What is going on with balls and strikes and umpires? I honestly think it's more of the social media uh, changes than anything. Do you really think that umpires have gotten worse in the last 10 to 15 years? I mean, I would, I would think not, right? I would think like, not, exactly. <laughs> I think that missed calls have been missed calls. It's just that, you know, you miss a call in Brewers Diamondbacks on a Wednesday at 340 Pacific time. No one gives a crap 10 years ago, but now it's on Twitter with a specified account to show your your, uh, missed call, your egregious error for game 50 of 162. Umpiring is a hard job. I'm as guilty as anyone of, uh, you know, criticizing the umpires, uh, perhaps unfairly, or at least going too hard on them, you know, when they miss a call. It's easy to do if you're, you know, calling a game play-by-play-wise, and you're like, man, that was two inches off the plate. Well, you know, you miss those sometimes at certain levels of baseball, and it's just part of it. I don't know. I, I'm still not fully on robot umpires, though. I, I can't get myself all the way there. I just feel like social media puts these guys on stage in their, their worst failures, and it doesn't do it often enough when they make good calls. And I think, too, we've got better cameras. We've got social media. We have the ability to put the box on the screen that we know isn't really yeah, there. It's, it's not official, you know? right? I mean, yeah. if you play baseball, as you have, JC, like, we know a true strike zone, is, it's got its verbal definition, but you know it varies slightly umpire to umpire, and, you know, he, he, there might be a little bit more uh, at the elbows on the inner half than there are at the knees off the black. You know, little things like that, and that's the way the game's been played for 150 years. You just know that as a player, and you have to strategize your pitches you know, to those changes, it's part of the game in my in my mind. I don't like homogenized universal boxes. I get it, but it's not realistic, 100% at least. And the other thing is, I would feel better if it was a series of missed calls that went in the batter's favor. Because pitching has become so dominant in this era, it would make sense to me, hey, the umpires are squeezing the strike zone a little bit, so pitchers who are painting around the corners aren't getting some of those calls. Umpires are making them throw the ball over the plate <laughs> because we want to we want to foster offense in the league. Like I could see the you know, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred saying, Look, umps, make them throw a strike if you're gonna call a strike, but that we're not getting that. We're getting balls that it's like ball four, guys two steps to first base and the and the umpire's going strike. That said, I'm with you, Judah. I'm with you in that I don't need, I don't need a uh, a GPS chip in the ball, and I don't need like you know if it's a strike you get a light that flashes red, and if it's a ball a light that flashes green. I don't need that because I think it would ruin part of what makes baseball special. In that baseball is a very human game, 
I'm okay with the umpire having his own strike zone. I, as long as the players on both teams know what the strike zone is, I'm okay. I'm good with that. I'm even, I'm even good with an occasional missed call. As long as we think the umpire and the, uh, you know, the umpires on the field are going to balance it out, or that they're going to get more right, far more right than they get wrong. Now I didn't know you in uh, in your college baseball days, but I I know a little bit of you now. I can't imagine John Canzano as a college baseball player had a dust up or two with an umpire. Is there a story there? Have you ever? Uh... Have you ever argued got, with an umpire? Oh, Any yeah. Stories there? Yeah, but most of the time, I, I worked as an umpire when I was like 15, right? Calling right. Little League games. Yep. And anybody who's done that has a tremendous amount of respect for people who are calling the games because you realize how difficult it is. And I can remember, you know, and I grew up in a town where it was 95 to 105 degrees all summer. I can remember putting on the shin guards and the mask and the chest protector and getting behind, you know, 12 <laughs> year old catcher. And calling balls and strikes in a game in which the pitcher could not find the plate. And, uh, you know, you're walking over between innings to both coaches and going, listen, uh, get your guys swinging. I'm going to open the strike zone up because we're going to be here all day. Like, I get it. So I, by and large, did not have an issue with umpires. I did have one game in particular, though, when you said that, that jumped out at me. All right. And this was this was not a college game. This was a like a high school would be the equivalent of like the fall ball league that they play now or summer league in baseball that they play now. I can remember this was terrible on my part, okay? I, I don't want my own children to ever have a story like this. But I was playing in a game in which we only had nine players. I believe it was a summer league game, and, and we all know that happens. People are on vacation, whatnot. Guys are playing out of position. <laughs> uh, and I was playing third base. And – the umpire was a stickler. We only had nine players, okay? He was a stickler, and he was giving somebody on our team a hard time because they didn't have the same color belt on that the rest of us had. And he was the infield umpire. He was not the home plate umpire, and he was asking, like, the second baseman, do you have another belt? And I was like, it's a summer league game. <laughs> His belt was like green. It was just a different shade of green than the rest of us. And the umpire said he's out of uniform. And so he made the player go back to the dugout to go see if he could find a belt. And he's digging around in his bag. And I walked over, and I thought it was kind of ridiculous. And I just said to the guy, I said, this is ridiculous. I said, and he goes, well, I'm going by the rule book. And I said, well, the rule book says we all have to have cups on, but you're not out here checking to make sure we all have cups on. <laughs> <laughs> and he ejected me oh, for saying that. And because he ejected me, we had to forfeit. <laughs> we only had eight players. Oh, you got your team a game. And I, I felt terrible. Oh, that's great. But at the same time, I was very logical. And I thought to myself, it was the first inning, too. And I thought to my, we were just warmed up. We're on the field. He's given the second baseman a hard time. And I just, and I didn't say it mean. I just kind of walked over. I said, hey, rule book says we have to have cups on. You, you know, we're not going to check everybody's <laughs> cup, are we? You know, I was just saying, pointing out how ridiculous this was. And he said, he turned and he tossed me out. I'll never forget it. You guys didn't play with uh, just two outfielders? You know, I don't think we could. I don't think they would allow us. Probably in could that. have a stickler umpire. Yeah, oh, stickler umpire is not going to let us play with eight. You know, Jeez. so so the other team was mad too, and I and they yeah. were like, "What did you say?" And I that I, I repeated, it and everyone's like, "What's the big deal?" That's ridiculous. You know, but yeah. he took it as me back talking him, and I should have just kept my mouth shut. Your parents talk to you when you get home? No, they weren't there. 
it was I was old enough to be driving myself to the games at that point. But I remember coming home early and everybody going, "Why are you back so early?" And I'm like, "Uh, game. We had to forfeit the game. Uh, terrible." But yeah, but what a guy. You know, I almost feel like he had somewhere to be. You know That's what I mean? It. And how hot was it too? That's the other thing. It was warm. Yeah, it was warm. We were playing. You know, and I, I almost feel like he was like he wasn't up for it that day. Yeah. So he was looking around, going, "Who has a you know that guy's green belt isn't the same shade as everybody else's." And I was just like, come on. Are you kidding me? And uh, anyway, that's how that went. And But by and large, look, I think they have a hard job to do. We have had numerous umpires on this show. Jim Joyce, who, who you know, infamously missed that call in that, that perfect game yeah. the Detroit Tigers threw several years ago. And he, he, he blew the call at first base. I got a lot of respect for Jim Joyce. I mean, he came on this show and he kind of talked about, you know, missing the call and how terrible he felt and – there's no instant replay at the time, and you know I just think he felt awful that he had not only missed the call, but he had uh, you know essentially cost uh, somebody a perfect game. So we had Jim Joyce on the show, and he talked all about that. And I think he owned it. He's been out as part of the celebrity golf tournament a few times, and one time there was a Tigers fan who you know I was like, oh, how's this gonna go? And the Tigers fan walked up to him and just said, hey, I really respect that you came out after that game and you just said you were sorry, you blew it. And and I think to to Donahue's point, like he made that that comment to David Robinson when he missed the call in that NBA game, and he talked about how Robinson sort of understood, hey, he missed it. Um, I think most people understand you're human, and I think most of us are very willing to empathize with people, who, you know, not being perfect. Out on the out doing their job, whether they're an umpire or a radio show host, or you know, uh, you know, if you're in construction or whatnot, like we all make mistakes. But I think we respect when people acknowledge they've made a mistake or maybe they missed one. And I know my dad did that too. My dad told me one time uh, he had a uh, a play at second base. He was a middle infielder, and uh, the former major league umpire, I think it was John McSherry, who went to the big leagues as an umpire. In fact, McSherry was the guy who died on the field. Do you remember that? Oh. Had the heart attack. Story. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and McSherry was in the minor leagues at the same time my dad was. And my dad tells the story that, you know, he was playing middle infield and a runner was stealing second and the catcher made a great throw. My dad got the ball. The ball beat him to the base. My dad tagged the guy out and then he's turning to, like, throw the ball around the infield. And uh, McSherry goes safe. And my dad, you know, is upset and is – starting to get in his face, kind of jumps towards him and says, what? And McSherry says, I'm sorry, Tony, I missed it. And what are you going to do at that point? Okay. My dad just said, okay. And then, and then they go on and they continue the game. Like, we all understand that the umpires don't have to be robots. And I'm okay with a missing one here or there. But, man, I'm looking at that strike zone right now. Yeah. It's happening every day. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree that that was, would be pretty skeptical. I would go college football, though, to the, to the point you brought up a few minutes ago of like what sport leaves room for kind of questionable gray area officiating that, you know, you, you might give a side eye to. Like, think about some of these games, like Mountain West games, you know, where there's not a whole lot of attention. Like, don't you think, you know, you could you could change the shape of a game with a couple holding calls here or there. Like holding is one of those penalties where some people would say it happens every play, but you'd also say, Hey, there's just enough ambiguity to, to be able to make judgment calls there. And guess what? No one's going to call you out on it. Cause not a lot of people are watching. Yeah. And I, and I think that, I think that at its core is what it's about. Sean, if you were going to look at a sport and 
you know, what sport do you think is most likely to have an officiating or refereeing scandal in today? Oh, wow. Really throwing me on the spot with this one. Um, you know, maybe NFL. There's been some really, really uh, questionable calls in the NFL the last couple of years, especially in the playoffs. Like, I, you know, the first place my head goes to when I think of okay, there might have been a rig in place here. It's the Rams-Saints game a couple of years ago, that NFC title. Um, so, you know, I, I think it, I could see it a fix in the NFL potentially, yeah. but in terms of, uh, you know, which one is most likely to have a fix, yeah, it's really hard to just kind of uh, think on the spot. But, I, yeah, I'll go with football on this one. Yeah, I get that because you hear football officials who say they could call a penalty on every play if they wanted to. And I think it's interesting. I always watch the officials during the timeouts in between quarters. And I have caught them at times during timeouts, and you'll notice this in the arena in an NBA game. They will look up at that scoreboard that has team fouls on it. Or at halftime, I've seen them come out and grab the stat sheet off of the, off of the scorer's table. And, see, that's confusing to me because I don't think an official should have any reason to look at the stat sheet. But they'll tell you they're looking at team fouls to see, all right, are we calling it balanced? Like, are we out of whack? Or how many fouls are on LeBron or Steph Curry? We don't want to foul him out. It's a big game. You heard Donahue say it. I kind of wish that the NBA game was officiated more like college basketball where they will foul a guy out. Like, a little bit less star treatment in the college game. Anna's popping into the studio next. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We had Tim Donahue, the former NBA official, on the show earlier today. Talk about conspiracy theories. It's not UFOs. It's not Bigfoot. It's just basketball. I think that sports lends itself to conspiracy theories maybe more so to some o- than some other disciplines. But Anna's popped into the studio, and Sean, Judah, listeners, I want to talk conspiracy theories. Is there a conspiracy theory that you believe in that maybe you think you're crazy for sharing with other people? Anna got a big smile on her face. <laughs> she leaned forward in her chair. I did. What Let's is, do the play-by-play. Oh, man, did that hit a nerve. You just you suddenly <laughs> sat forward, and you were delighted. Is there a conspiracy theory that you believe in that you might feel a little nutty telling other people you believe in? I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, but I totally believe in aliens. So, like, life somewhere in the universe other than here on Earth. And I do lean toward the idea that though they have made contact with mm-hmm. us there maybe there's something to area 51 like i i really want to go to area 51 and see it someday it's kind yep. of a bucket list thing i want to go to los alamos and you know just poke around when you go through that part of new mexico mm-hmm. everything is area 51 themed like you see yeah. aliens on the side of the road like, you know, fake aliens on the side of the road. And you go into, like, the gas station, and they're selling alien keychains and stuff like that. So there's a certain element to it that they play to it, and they play it up. They ham it up. Yeah. So nobody there is going to think you're crazy. But 
Do you think uh do you think it's a little nutty to believe in aliens? No, I don't because there's just been so much I'll put evidence, I guess, in air quotes that, you know, the presence of aliens mm -hmm. is is within our history. And then there was the video fairly recently of the um, American pilots that caught mm -hmm. on their video recordings, you know, super high-speed objects flying past. And I don't know that there was ever a conclusive answer on what those objects were, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't there's, know enough to yeah. not believe. Let's but there's say. a certain crowd you couldn't share that with because they'd look at you like, come, Why? On, come on. Judah Newby, do you have a conspiracy theory you believe in that maybe uh, – Maybe you'd be afraid to share. <laughs> well, first of all, I love the phrase evidence in air quotes. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I'm going to start a new podcast. I'm going to call it evidence in air <laughs> evidence quotes. Evidence in air quotes, yeah. <laughs> serial, uh, Judas serial podcast. Um, mine is, I think I said it like a few weeks ago, but I think, and this is funny because I could care less about the Kardashians, but I think whoever the Kardashians date is totally fabricated, made up, manufactured in a boardroom mm. somewhere mm -hmm. just for PR. That's I all agree. it is. I, I believe, I have 0% belief in whatever true love uh, exists with the Kardashians. I think it's totally a PR stunt, whether it's <laughs> Pete Davidson, Kanye, whatever. I think it's all fake, uh, Fugazi, and uh, it's just out there. There it is. I'm not even afraid to say <laughs> I agree. I agree. Like, I, I, I saw Kim Kardashian telling the story of her and Pete Davidson. Yeah. And she was saying, oh, they had a kiss on Saturday Night Live. They were doing an Aladdin bit. Yeah. And she said there was just chemistry there. And at the rap party, Davidson didn't show up. So it made her more interested in him. Oh, yeah. I went down that rabbit hole. And then uh, <laughs> and then afterwards, she called the producer to get his phone number. Uh -huh. And then she reached out to him. You know, I agree with Judah. I think she was sitting around with her mom and her sisters. And she went, okay. I've done the pro athlete thing, got that world. I've done the rappers and the singers, the musical artists. I've done that to an extent. Yeah. I need What's a comedian. What's the genre I haven't tapped into yet? I need a comedian. Exactly. exactly. Look, I've watched that Aladdin sketch a hundred times. Don't ask me why. Yeah. There's nothing, oh, really? nothing magical about that kiss. Oh. I mean, you know, and definitely that has nothing to do with Pete Davidson. I mean, are you kidding me? That guy having a magical kiss? I don't think so. You've reviewed that clip so many times, Judah. That's no, really the headline I'm a there. Big, uh, SNL fan. That's all. I see. Okay. It has nothing okay. to do with wardrobe or anything like that. Studying their body language. <laughs> a portion <laughs> of that. Read, exactly. Read the cues. Exactly. <laughs> I, love, their own. I love comedy. Sean, do you have... A conspiracy theory. How do mattress stores make money? <laughs> what? There's so many of them. What do you mean? They and sell so, mattresses. Yeah, but who's buying a mattress at a store and then going mm. and putting it in their car? Like, if you buy a mattress these days, you're probably buying it online and it shows up mm -hmm. to your door. Who's buying a mattress at a store these days? It's a great point. Days? It's a great point. And, and, and by the way, okay, when's the last time you bought a mattress? When's the last time our listeners bought a mattress? It's not something you buy every six months. Wouldn't at some point the pond just be fished out for a while? And how, how are there so many mattress stores? 
<laughs> I bet there's That's a like, great point, Sean. I bet there's a cycle. I bet there's some kind of graph some economist has come up with to you know what track it is. the sale of mattresses. It's a front, Anna. The whole the mattress store is a front. Tony Soprano's back there with Polly Walnuts. And this is Bada Bing in twenty twenty two. Going to the mattresses? Yes. Uh, that's that's wonderful, Sean. What about uh, that's your conspiracy theory? Is who's buying mattresses? Sean's mattress store is my all-year Christmas store. Oh yeah, how do those mm. places make it? And I you love know? you know I think we all know that 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 lovely spot in Lincoln City. Won't call it out, but how does that stay in business year-round? Yeah, there was one in Oregon City too, but it didn't make it. It was I think a casualty of the pandemic. It's fascinating. Yeah, all year. And then the like piano stores. How many pianos <laughs> do you have to sell? Just one, probably, right? Yeah. A month? How yep. many ma- how many pianos do you need to sell to make rent? Yeah, I think the piano stores are a front as well. That's <laughs> that's a whole other thing. I thought you guys were going to go like lunar landing. I thought you were going to be like JFK in the grassy knoll. <laughs> Instead, we were talking about mattresses. What's a conspiracy theory that you believe in? 503-417-7575. I'll share mine next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. conspiracy theory that you may believe in or you would be afraid to share with people in a public setting that you believe in. There was microchips and Bill Gates. There was uh, the QAnon stuff. Uh, Monkeypox conspiracy theories are out there. Uh, There's even a Mel Gibson movie called Conspiracy Theory that is kind of interesting and crazy at the same time. But give me a conspiracy theory that you believe in that you would be afraid maybe to share with other people. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a flat earther. Um, I don't believe Oswald acted alone, but I don't, I'm not afraid to share that with people. Um, I, uh, I also agree, Anna, there's probably life somewhere else out there. Um, but I'm going to go with the – I don't want to say the Loch Ness Monster – but I think there's probably a sea creature out there. There's too much ocean. I'm first of all, I'm scared of the ocean. Okay, <laughs> I I don't like it. You know that. Yeah. You've been around me when we're out in the open water. Mm-hmm. We were in a shark cage swimming in Hawaii. I'm. It's not where I belong. <laughs> I don't belong out there among the sharks in the water, and I certainly don't belong in the deep, deep depths of the ocean. I'm going to tell you that I believe there's probably a sea creature that's out there that's like a sea monster. I believe that. Mm-hmm. And I would not be surprised. They're going to pull out of the they're going to pull some creature out of the ocean one day. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be like, "Look at this thing. It's prehistoric and it's a sea monster." And I'm going to go, "Of course. All of those sailors had those stories back in the day yeah. when, you know, nobody had Twitter and they were <laughs> they would say, "Oh, there's a sea creature, there's a mermaid out there, whatnot." I'm telling you, there's stuff out there. I believe that. I would be mildly embarrassed to share that like at a cocktail party, but not on radio. Uh, I want to know what your theory is at 503-417-7575. Let's go to Kim, who's in Kent, Washington. 
Kim, what's your theory? Well, I got a sports one and an economic one. The sports one is that somebody in the Blazers organization tipped ticked off somebody in the NBA, and we're never going to get to the finals again. Could be. <laughs> Could be. And the economic one is the oil prices. They go up so dang fast, but they never go down. Who's doing that? Mm. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> uh, which of those two theories do you think is more plausible? Mm, Blazers, for yeah. sure. <laughs> it it makes sense. Blazers. So long. I think David Stern's NBA caused a lot of conspiracy whisper to happen and i don't think it was good for the game uh let's go to don who's in gresham don welcome to the show hi i have had a long felt conspiracy that following the byu ncaa title of 1985 in football that i don't know if it was tv or the bowls or the big conferences, but somebody got together and said, we need to change the rules so no small school can ever win this football title again. I think they did that. They caught, they formed, you know, the college football playoff. That made no, it yeah. damn sure that, no, that nobody – in fact, they locked out the Pac-12, Don, <laughs> yeah. while they were at it. But yeah, I think it was – I think it was – People have told me, no, it wasn't a conspiracy to lock the small schools out. And I said, sure it was. They've almost guaranteed it with the rules. It'll never happen. Yeah, even in the, the, that BCS era, Don, um, I was covering at the time, uh, early in that BCS era, I think it was 1998 or 99, uh, right around that time, I was covering, I was working at the Fresno Bee as a sports columnist. Pat Hill was the football coach at Fresno State. David Carr was the quarterback. Derek Carr was the little brother playing catch on the sideline with all the media members that were there at practice. We had no idea, okay? Uh, So Pat Hill used to come off the field, and he would say, this BCS thing is a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy. He wouldn't even say theory. He'd say, they aren't throwing us a bone. He goes, we could go undefeated. And, And in fact, that year that they had David Carr at quarterback. They beat Wisconsin at Wisconsin. They beat Colorado at Colorado. They beat Colorado State at Colorado State. They were like 6-0 and or 7-0 and before they lost a game. They were on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and he was right. They had no shot to get into the BCS, even if they went undefeated. And he used to say, they need to throw us a bone. He would say it over and over. Throw us a bone. Throw us a bone. Give us... But to the caller's point, the system was invented by, you know, the former Tennessee athletic director who went on to say, like, let's create this BCS system. Roy Kramer was his name. And then it was handed off to Gene Hancock, who put together the college football playoff. And Dan Wetzel wrote a great book called, you know, Death to the BCS that is a fantastic read about, like, how they gamed the system. They game the BCS system to only include Power 5 conference teams and skew towards the SEC and the Big Ten. The college football playoff is no different. Judah, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think it's sadly uh, you're onto something there, and I think it's accurate for sure. Um, and it just comes to mind, plausible deniability is basically a profession. You know, I, I kind of imagine in my head just one guy in a suit going around to yes. the different commissioners of the different sports, and no one knows his name, his, but his position is 
director of plausible deniability. And his job is to go and talk to these commissioners and the officiating organizations and the and anybody in power and construct systems in place that are sustainable to engineer and uh, give the most revenue and capital for the league. But they're systems. So there's enough, you know, arm length distance for the commissioners for the plausible deniability while also definitely leaving holes of like, man, is this... Is this really right? And I think the college football playoff is a perfect example, especially when you get, look at all the money that's going for these TV networks. Soccer yesterday went for two and a half bill. You know, <laughs> who knows what the NBA is going to go for here in a couple of years. Uh, media rights deals are just crazy. So how could there not be a little bit of shady shade going on behind the scenes? I agree with that. Yeah, too much money involved yeah. and the people in charge definitely have a dog in the fight which raises those questions do you guys think that social media and kind of the ability now for conspiracy theories like some people really believe some of this wild stuff like you see it it's out there it's on facebook like you know we all know people who believe stuff that we know is nutty yeah or people just go on youtube and talk about this stuff like it's it's a fact yeah like, if they just say it on YouTube, it yeah. happened. Uh-huh. Flat Earth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, stuff like that. But do you think that we, like, there used to be kind of a romanticism about conspiracy theory, Bigfoot, UFOs. Yeah. It's romantic. Mm-hmm. That's gone. You know? What do you think it's been replaced by? I think it's because we see so much crap on social media and we see people who are certifiably a little nutty buddy. Yeah. You know, it, we, it has lost kind of the romanticism of it. Like, you know, they used to make movies about UFOs. Steven Spielberg made a career out of making movies like ET and you got close encounters with Richard Dreyfuss and like, you know, Mm -hmm. but nowadays I don't think you can make those movies because they hit too close to home. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think the unfortunate thing is with all this, like there's so much political conspiracy theories that to me, when I see those on social media, I just, I just check out. Like I, I get so uh, fatigued with all the, uh, you know, conspiracy, you know, so some of those might be accurate, but I just, I got no time for that. I like the more lighthearted stuff that you've been yeah. pointing out really like the sea monster. I'm totally on board with the sea monster. <laughs> yeah. But you can see that's the good old days of conspiracy theory thinking. Anything David Stern related, I'm on board with. Those are the days, you know, I you know, not allowing the Chris Paul Lakers trade. Like huge conspiracy. Like, I totally believe in all that, man. But yeah, sometimes it gets a little more like, too political it's for too me. It's too real. Now. It's too painful. Yeah. I will it's, say, yeah, yeah, there's a there's a couple great books. One, one my favorite author is a guy named Ryan Holiday. He wrote a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, and it's about his <laughs> it's his uh, experience as in a marketing role for American Apparel back in the day, and it's such a volatile company, American Apparel, about 15 you know years ago or so, and uh, great book, and it sheds a lot of light on how the sausage gets made, especially in the day and age of social media. You'd be shocked how many viral videos are manufactured. Viral videos. You're there. Oh my God! How did that yeah. happen? Totally staged. I well, mean, like and Tom that's Brady. Totally Tom Brady hitting the hole in one. Mm-hmm. I mean, give me a break. Right. And that's that's just a tame version, you know. But uh, a bunch of other stuff is, man. You can fabricate a lot these days. It's uh, it's a little alarming. Speaking yeah. of yeah. Tom Brady, Spygate. Remember that? Yeah. Did the NFL destroy the evidence from Spygate to hide what the Patriots were really doing? Well, how that about or Deflategate or Spygate? Which one? 
I mean, you know, to Spygate, they were videotaping the Jets. Yes. And they probably were videotaping other teams for a long time. Deflategate, it was the balls. Remember, you know. Yeah. But Brady, remember Brady had his phone and the <laughs> – the NFL wanted his phone yeah. and, like, he destroyed it or yeah. whatever. Like, you know. Yeah, like, destroy the evidence. Anybody who's ever been in a relationship is looking at Tom Brady in that moment going, he's guilty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that guy's guilty. Totally. He's done it. So, yeah. How about the Patriots in general, you know? <laughs> the New England Patriots. I would have, like, Sean brought up the mattress stores. What if it turned out Robert Kraft owned all the mattress stores? <laughs> it, would make ter- it would make total sense. Better right, I want other stuff. Yeah. I want to talk about. <laughs> I want to talk about toughness coming up. Plus, we'll talk about the Celtics. They say they won't go quietly, and the Warriors are saying this will be the toughest win of their season. They need one more. We'll talk about it all coming up next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want to talk about toughness in athletics, sports, and toughness. I remember a story from long ago. Ronnie Lott, former 49ers safety. He broke his pinky finger trying to tackle Timmy Newsom in a game against the Dallas Cowboys. Um, you know, we were at the time it was a 16 game schedule and Ronnie Lott didn't want to miss any games. This was December of 1985. It was the last game of the regular season. The Niners were heading to the playoffs. They were 10 and six. Ronnie Lott cut off the tip of his pinky so that he could finish the game. He did not want to miss any of the game. I am going to tweet out a photograph of his finger now. He's holding his Super Bowl rings. He's missing the tip of his pinky finger. He lost about a third of his pinky. Ronnie Lott, hard-hitting defensive back, tough guy. He amputated his pinky. They numbed it. They sliced it off. They put it in a cast. A week later, he was there as the Niners lost to the New York Giants 17-3 eliminating them from the postseason. Two two weeks later, the cast came off, and Ronnie Lott had what was left of his finger. He said he felt sick. He tried to stand up. He broke into a sweat. He said it was shock. He said, oh, man, I should have put a pin in this. Uh, We're losing the compassionate side of sports. We're becoming gladiators. If I hope, if I ever become a coach, I hope I never lose sight of the fact that players are people. He said, I could have all of Eddie DiBartolo's corporations, and it wouldn't buy me a new finger. It gave him a new perspective on life. Tough guy, right? Or dumb? Decide for yourself. Meanwhile, in a story that I saw today, uh, New Orleans Saints' Marcus Davenport had half of his pinky amputated in the offseason. He had an infection. It was from a previous surgery. He also had surgery on his right shoulder in January. He's hoping to be healthy by training camp. He says the pinky had been a nagging issue. He tore the ligaments in it in his junior year in college at a bowl game. He said it's been bugging him. He's learned to adjust. He's 6'6", 265. People are saying, tough guy. 
Is this really toughness by Ronnie Lott and Marcus Davenport? Or what is toughness? Um, I think toughness is the ability to overcome adversity and to to keep going. I, I think especially in sports, it's the ability to finish. Because like how many times have we seen athletes or teams hold on and they're tough, but then in those last final moments, it's like they've given up. Yeah. And so I, I think toughness is the ability to finish. Because how frustrating is it when you see that happen in athletics? Yeah. But that's you're talking about mental toughness, grit, like resilience. Uh, you're talking about your insides. Yeah. Right? Kind of. But with, with athletics, it's a combination. Because the, the, what's going on in your head is in part what's driving you physically to keep going and finish. Yeah. I could see that. Judah, are those guys tough? Or is, is that just sports tough? Can you be tough and dumb at the same time? Or <laughs> I think you know, you, those things are not mutually exclusive. Where's the Venn diagram on this? You know, there's tough, <laughs> dumb in the middle. It's there's almost a whole lot. circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well then, man, I am not tough at all because you know, so yes. smart, so so smart. No, yes, I agree with you. I think that's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I in the moment, Ronnie Lott is one of the toughest guys out there. And then, you know, 10 years later, I'm sure he would say, yeah, you know what? I was just being dumb, but that's still tough to me. I mean, my my line is, like, would I do that? Like, would I be able to do that? And, you know, if I couldn't stomach that, then, yeah, I think that's probably – I'd say it's tough, you know? I, I, he's doing it for his team, especially yeah. on the field in the – like, that's pretty tough in a lot of ways. It's tough for me to uh, grasp, and it's tough for him to do physically. Well, and I think part of toughness, too – it, it, you have to train for toughness. Like you have to, there there has to be a certain amount of exposure to adversity mm. to be able to become tough. It's you know some of that might be just what's inside of you. Yeah. But y y it's almost like you have to train for it. Like I think that's a lot of the problem with kids that are growing up and they're becoming adults oh, they're in soft. age, but then they're soft because. As the the helicopter parents in us, and I'm pointing at us as well, it's like we haven't prepared them for adversity. We haven't allowed them to fail. We haven't allowed them to encounter situations where they have to challenge themselves mm -hmm. because we're trying so hard to pave the road ahead of them that you know we're really doing them a disservice. I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think I think it, it's interesting. I, I had a phone conversation this morning with Bobby Hurley. The Arizona State basketball coach. Okay. okay, he called me. I was he. <laughs> I was going to the ATM. Okay. At the bank. Yeah. This was so frustrating. <laughs> I got in line. I'm in my car. Okay. I'm going through the drive-through ATM at the bank. Yeah. Okay. And I'm waiting in a line of like three cars. There's a car behind me. Uh huh. I got up to the ATM and my phone rang. I've been waiting for a call, return call from Hurley. Uh -oh. It's Hurley on the phone. All of a sudden, I was like, crap. I can't sit here. I can't do the transaction. He's going to be hearing beep, beep, beep. You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't have faked it. Yeah. So I got up to the front of the line, and I just went, damn it. And I went, in, and I went around the bank and yeah. got back in line again. Okay? <laughs> I'm sure the person behind me was like, what the hell is this guy doing? This About to be robbed. Life. Calling 911. Isn't that always the case? The, the call that you're waiting for yes. always comes at the worst time. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but we got on the subject of toughness while I was waiting to use the ATM again yeah. for the second time. And by the way, 
our call wasn't done and it came my turn, I went back around again. <laughs> you I did, did not. Yeah, I did. I did three laps. You uh, probably looked insane. Yeah, they were like, "What is this guy's issue?" Also, <laughs> Bobby Early. But but I don't want to. I don't want him. I don't want to be unprofessional. Sure. Yeah. So we got on the subject of toughness because he was talking about his dad and yeah. he was saying how hard his dad was. His dad was really hard on him, and uh -huh. his dad is a Hall of Fame high school coach, the miracle of St. Anthony. You could read the book. Woj wrote the book about Hurley's dad and, you know, St. Anthony in New Jersey and what a special story that is and all this stuff. But uh, Bobby Hurley said, you know, I decided when I was a parent, I didn't want to maybe do some of the things my dad did because I wanted to be a little different kind of dad. Mm -hmm. His dad was hard on him. Sure. Like, like he literally told the story of, he, you know, they would practice at a bingo hall in high school, the St. Anthony team. And if he and his dad weren't seeing eye to eye, his dad at the end of the practice would just tell him, hey, go uh, go get on the number nine bus. I'm not driving you home. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so. Jeez. Yeah. Find your way home. Yeah, find your own way home. And so Hurley, uh, you know, told me that. And then I said, you know, I have three daughters, and I really feel, find myself harder on the younger daughter. Like mm -hmm. she has, you know, by virtue of her age, yeah, she got the short end of the stick because she gets parents who are a little more like, I'm not going to do everything for you. Mm -hmm. I've realized doing everything for you does not make you tough. And she gets the hand-me-downs, right? Yeah. All the clothes she's wearing. She doesn't yeah. know it, but like, I know. she's getting all the leftovers. And the funny thing is, I think she's tougher than oh, the other two for sure. girls. Like yeah. she's the tough one. And he said, I find the same experience with his kids. I think he has three daughters as well. Uh -huh. But he said, I just decided I didn't want to be that kind of dad. But I think you can. You talk about teaching toughness or whatever. I think you can foster it. Yeah. But I think you have to have it somewhere in you innately too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't think these two guys that are losing their pinky fingers are tougher than moms who are giving birth. <laughs> Anybody ever been in a room where a child is born? <laughs> you get a newfound respect for, like, you know, what is tough. Well, I mean, there's a lot of versions of tough. Anybody who's a single parent, I mean, come on. That's a day-to-day -to -day tough. If you're living on a shoestring budget, that's a real, that's a different kind of daily tough. If you're living in, like, chronic pain every day, that's a measure of toughness, you know? I saw Tiger Woods the other day. They had a, There was a video of him. I showed it to you, Anna, and he, yeah. had, he, had, hit in the, he had hit a ball off the fairway he was well into the woods there was like you know 50 million people gathered around the ball waiting for him to take a shot and he was really focused on hitting the shot you could see him visualizing the shot but i also noticed he was limping like his body you can tell he's uncomfortable mm -hmm. and it's post you know accident surgery all that stuff where he might have had his leg amputated there's a level of toughness that we're watching in tiger woods just competing right now that I think goes beyond when Tiger was in his prime and healthy. Like, yeah. you know, we all talk, oh, he's mentally tough. He's, you know, he's got his red polo shirt on on a Sunday. Nobody's going to beat him. The rest of the field's afraid of him. <laughs> I see a guy right now who's out there. His body's not, he's, you know, he's maybe at like 80% healthy. He's hobbling. He's trying to make good. But you can see, like, the intense focus that he has. Yeah. It's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Like, you saw it. I well, showed you the and video. His ability, uh, uh, his intense concentration on visualizing the shot yeah. and visualizing this, a successful shot, 
like that's something that we can all you know take a note from oh, it's God. not like we all need to have like a vision board or a dream board or whatever they call those i think those are kind of cheesy but the ability to see success and how much more likely you are to achieve it if you can see it if you can say it out loud even if you can write it down like a lot of us spend a lot of time like trying to dream up things but we never put it into anything concrete or even speak it but if we can do that you're a step closer right yeah they've done studies about you know people will practice free throws and then the other group will visualize free throws and they find that there's almost no difference between mm -hmm. the two leave it here <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Is it already that time again? Man, we're going to give you the five biggest, most important sort of kind of things going on in the world of sports coming up here. Anna and I will joust about it. For those of you interested in a great weekend at the Oregon Convention Center, family weekend, Father's Day weekend, I'm going to give you the activity that you should put on your bucket list. Worlds of sport. I promise you I'll stop talking about it in about a week. But I want you to check out worldsofsport.com if you're interested in seeing all your favorite teams, Oregon and Oregon State, Blazers, Timbers, Thorns, Winterhawks, Hops, Dutch Bros, Portland Gear, Columbia, great brands inside the Oregon Convention Center. Some really interesting sports as well. Omega Ball, you heard of that? Ultimate Frisbee, probably Pickleball. Judah, you can play pickleball inside the Oregon Convention Center over the weekend. I'm there. <laughs> All of the great sports and some quirky things, plus esports, memorabilia, trading cards. A lot of vendors who have traveled, some from as far away as Florida. Got a guy coming in from Florida, apparently, at the Oregon Convention Center this weekend. 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. on Saturday, 10 to 5 on Sunday. A uh, bunch of panel discussions going on as well. If you're into the industry or you're wondering about a career in sports or you're going, hey, you know, I would love to be an agent or I'd love to be an executive. How do you get that job? You want to meet uh, members of the U.S. women's national team? You want to meet, uh, you know, ducks, beavers? How about, uh, you know, if you want to meet uh, executives from the Timbers or Oregon or Oregon State, all of them will be present and part of Worlds of Sport. Now, great Father's Day weekend. Kids are either free or heavily discounted, courtesy of Dutch Bros. So if you want your family to attend, you can get a one-day pass or a two-day pass by going to worldsofsport.com. Oregon Convention Center, bringing people back together post-pandemic uh, great time to walk around and let the kids run through the obstacle course or kick a field goal, and you can have a great time and a bunch of giveaways. Uh, uh, courtesy of Dutch Bros, I got another four-pack of tickets for a family to go. 
You can do that at 503-417-7575. Sean, I'll let you pick the winner. A four-pack of tickets, weekend passes. Grab them now. Anna and I are going to play The Five at Five in the meantime. The Five at Five. Number one in our list of Five at Five, the Golden State Warriors and the Boston Celtics. Warriors looking to close out the Celtics, but they say they're preparing for the hardest game of the season. They have failed to close out three previous series in their first attempt. The trend is your friend if you're a better. The Warriors are in a familiar position. Sixth time in the last eight years they're in the NBA Finals. But they're ahead 3-2 as the series turns to Boston for Game 6 on Thursday night. But the Warriors are making it clear that they don't think this will be easy. Clay Thompson said it's a disservice if you think about things that don't even exist yet. I'm not sure if it's a disservice. I don't know if that's the right word. But I know what you mean, Clay. Is this the real Clay Thompson? I know what you mean. Warriors have struggled to close out games this postseason, in part because it's the NBA, in part because they're human. I think the Warriors win this in seven. I originally said six, but I kind of feel like the Boston Celtics at home in game six is just what the NBA wants. I think this is going to go seven games as the Warriors head to Boston for game six. Anna, number two, go. The Stanley Cup starting up. Game one tonight, Tampa Bay Lightning and the Colorado Avalanche. The Stanley Cup final. Stanley Cup playoffs. Final. 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 Welcome See, to I'm my so world, good fellas. at this sports thing. Yeah, go ahead. Can the Avalanche become the fifth preseason favorite in the last 30 years to win it all? They're playing the Lightning. It's the Everyone kind of anticipated it would be Lightning, Avalanche. It's a really good matchup. And by the way, the hockey playoffs have been great, and I'm not a hockey yeah. fan. I'm not a diehard hockey fan. But I've watched and followed, and I've gone, gosh, I wish we had an NHL team here in Portland. It made me wonder how far away the Kraken are from mattering, you know? How far away are they from making the playoffs, making a final? Probably a while. I don't think, like the Golden Knights got there really quickly. Mm -hmm. People in Vegas, but it was, there was magic in that one. There was a, it was a lot of emotion. It was a city that was a better team, a lot of atmosphere. According so. to ESPN, only four NHL preseason favorites over the last three decades have gone on to win the Stanley Cup final. In 2020, the Lightning, 2015, the Blackhawks, 2002, Red Wings, and 97, Red Wings. That's number two in our five at five. Number three, let's go to baseball. Houston Astros had an immaculate inning. Luis Garcia, the starter for Houston, through an immaculate inning. Do you know what an immaculate inning is, Anna? It is nine pitches, three strikeouts. Okay? Uh-huh. There it is. You, it. you basically throw nine pitches, strike out all three hitters, that's an inning. They threw an immaculate inning, they, they, and then they doubled down. They threw two immaculate innings in one game. It's the first time in Major League Baseball history that that has happened. And, you know, three batters up, three batters down, nine pitches. 
Now, there have been previously 104 immaculate innings in Major League Baseball history. But today was the first time there were two in the same game. And the Astros threw them both. That moved him into a tie, by the way, for the most immaculate innings by one franchise. The Yankees and Dodgers have nine each. And there you have it. I just think it's funny that immaculate is the word they're using in baseball to describe that. I, I want to have an immaculate segment of radio. Immaculate. <laughs> Sounds so dainty. Fact. You know what? We were talking about this the other day. Top Gun call signs. Uh-huh. Like, you know, Maverick, Iceman. Yeah. You know. Goose. Goose. Yeah. What's the kid's name? Viper. Viper. Rooster. Rooster. Judah, what would be your call sign in a Top Gun movie? Probably like some state like Oklahoma or something no. like that. They'd call you <laughs> Mac for that's, McMinnville. That's Mac. actually like, that's exactly right. They would, they would call you Mac. <laughs> yeah. You can't give, you don't give your uh, own call sign. I would like Immaculate to be mine. Immaculate? Yeah. Yeah. There's immaculate. Mac and I'm Immaculate. Hard to say. I only yeah. say Oklahoma because yeah. I, I watched some John Wayne movies growing up, and every supporting character to John Wayne had it some state as his name, <laughs> Colorado, Oklahoma. I, I, I remember in college, I, I, my grandpa had a, had a friend na nicknamed Banjo. <laughs> his, his friend was named Banjo, and I thought that was the coolest nickname. He would say, my friend Banjo, and he would tell a story about Banjo. Never knew the guy's name. <laughs> Uh, but we were in college one time, we were drinking, and we were in a bar, and uh, some sorority girl said, what's your name? And I said, Banjo. <laughs> right? Just joking. It was like a week later, I'm on campus, I'm walking to my class, and I hear somebody yelling, Banjo! Banjo! <laughs> and I look over, and I'm like, oh, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Anna. Uh. Number oh, we're four. still doing this. Yeah, number, number four. Married a banjo, Anna. <laughs> yeah. Number four. 23-time uh, Grand Slam winner Serena Williams will play at Wimbledon after all. Wow. Can I talk? Uh, it's awarded her a wild card invitation. She's in. Good or bad? It's good. Good or bad? I think it's great. I, she deserves it. Does she not deserve a wild card? Like, they, they've given wild cards to less heralded players. Yeah. I mean, she's only won the Grand Slam 23 times. You know, didn't she just have a baby? <laughs> Was that her? I don't know. She played. She won the Australian Open, I want to say 2019, when she was pregnant. Wow. Yeah. Like, like far along, I think, like 20-some weeks. Is that fair, though, two against one? <laughs> <laughs> that you know pregnancy I mean? strength is like, oh, her forehand. Oh, my I'd be, on, I'd be on the other side of that net, and I'd be like, this is not fair. She's 40 years old. Wow. She's really good at tennis. Yeah. Do you think she'll be a pickleball player in her elderly years? <laughs> elderly years? Who would want to play? You know, let's say Judah moves down to Florida or Arizona. He's in his 80s. He's like, I want to take up some pickleball. And they're like, Mac, get in here. You're going to play. He looks across the uh, net, and there is Serena. She's, you know, 78-year-old Serena. I wonder how competitive she'll be at Wimbledon, you know? I want to see it. But don't it does add to the game, I think. Don't bet against her. Finally, the fifth in our five at five. Um, we've seen players that that would retire or quit or maybe they lose their love for the game. Indianapolis Colts safety is it Kahari Will Willis? Is that right? Am I saying that right? I think so, yeah. He announced today 
that he's retiring after three seasons in the NFL. He wants to become a minister. Oh. In an Instagram post, he said, with a lot of prayer and deliberation, he's elected to retire from the NFL. He wants to devote the remainder of his life to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. Thanked his family and friends. Mike dropped it. Fourth round pick in 2019. He was the starting strong safety halfway through his rookie season. Finishes his career with four interceptions, 33 starts. The Colts said, we're thankful and appreciative of his contributions. Talked about his character, his leadership, and his professionalism. And uh, they're letting him, so to speak, go with God. There it is. The 26 years old. Yeah, respect for that. The NFL. Wow. Follow your uh, follow your heart. You know, and that's your faith and your heart. There's there's worse things like that uh, we've seen players retire for. Meanwhile, Tom Brady won't go anywhere. <laughs> Get that guy some religion, okay? <laughs> Football is his religion. Get that guy some purpose. Tom Brady went home for like two months, and he went, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that is what I think about with Tom Brady. It's yeah. aim- aimless li- living. Yeah. Aimless you know what happened? Giselle told him to take the trash out. He went outside. He took the trash out. He got in his car and drove to the practice facility. <laughs> he said, hell with this. They're like gajillionaires. I'm sure there's someone that they have who takes the trash out. I don't know about that. Or, he, or maybe he heard. That Michael Jordan and LeBron and Tiger were billionaires. Yeah. And he's only like a 400 millionaire. He's got I looked some it work up. to do. I looked it up. Did he you? Is, yeah, he's poor. <laughs> like, I even tweeted that. I don't think people got it. I went, Tiger Woods, LeBron, Michael Jordan are all billionaires. Yeah. Tom Brady. I put poor, poor. Tom Brady. Poor. And I, it, to me, that was really clever. But I'm not target demo for a viral tweet. Yeah. So I thought, you know, it, people didn't get it. I just love the conjecture about their home life that we know really nothing about. Oh, I think it's a living yeah. hell. Yeah. It's obvious why he's going back. Yeah. I, I actually got a peek into their home life How? years ago. Super Bowl, they lost to the New York Giants. Okay. I've told this story on air before, but I was, uh, I was I'm one of these people where I, I don't go with the herd after the game. I was leaving the press box. I was going down to the locker rooms, but I didn't go to the news conference. So I took the regular elevator down. I was walking on the concourse at whatever stadium I was in. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I think it was in Houston or somewhere like that. And I looked up, and here comes Giselle coming the other way. How did she look? She was in heels and a dress. At a football game? Yeah. Okay. And she had someone with her, but I I could not tell you who was with her. Okay. She's walking towards me. She had had the... Super Bowl program in her hands. Okay, but wait, go back. Was she stunning? Was she striking? Yeah, she was striking. Okay. And, but she had the Super Bowl program, and it was rolled up. Yeah. And to me, I recognized that immediately because I was like, who would roll up a program? You want to save that. Uh-huh. That could be worth something. Right. That Super Bowl program. She rolled the program up, and she threw it in the trash. As she walked by me, she spiked it in the trash. She was not happy with them losing the game. Oh. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. She's competitive too. Mm-hmm. Okay, either that or she took a wrong turn and was pissed about having to walk in <laughs> heels about the other all the way around the stadium. Yeah, one of those two things was going on there. Yeah, 
You know? And what does that tell you about their home life? A little peek into their home life. Maybe they were playing Scrabble, Anna. Yeah. And they got a disagreement uh-huh. when he was retired. And maybe they were like, hey, we're both too competitive. We can't be at home. Oh, that would never happen. We you don't know? know anyone that's happened to. Yeah. Anna and I can't play board games, guys. You've, you've had a couple. Were they, were they engaged? Were they married? And uh, what happened? You guys had some people over, I remember. I think oh, no, no, that, that one. Yeah, we had some people over. We broke up the relationship. Yeah, good because job. Because we played a game called Man Rules and Woman Law. <laughs> and the guy was an idiot. The guy. <laughs> Problem number one. The guy didn't read the room. It, and you got to play this whole, the premise of this whole stupid game, Man Law, Woman Rules, whatever it's called. They, the premise is you have to guess what the other people are going to say. Yeah. So to me, kind of it's like family feud. Yeah. You know? But for me, it's not really about what I believe. Yeah. It's about knowing what you're going to answer mm-hmm. and knowing what that other lady that you brought to this board mm-hmm. game was going to answer. Yeah. And this other guy. Yeah. So I'm reading them and trying to guess what they're going to say. And the guy was not. He was being combative. And the question was, <laughs> is it permissible for your significant other to have a checking account or a savings account you don't know about. Now, down deep, I would say no. But I knew your friend is a very independent soul. Yeah. She's a freedom fighter. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so I knew she would say, we're not married. Yeah. I can do whatever I want. So I voted corresponding to that, knowing that she was going to answer that way. Because I knew that that was going to be her answer. Mm-hmm. He did not. Yeah. And they got in an argument at the table on whether or not it was permissible to have a secret bank account. Yeah. <laughs> it got a little ugly. The very next question was, women are smarter than men. It's a statement. <laughs> and you're supposed to vote. True or false. True or false based on what everyone else is going to say. Now, I knew Anna was going to say, yes, women are smarter. <laughs> I knew the freedom fighter was already pissed off at the guy. She was going to say yes. So I was like, all I have to do is say yes, and I know that I'm going to get the point here. Yeah. He said no. They called yeah. a 20-second timeout. Mm-hmm. They huddled in the other room. Yeah. They came back in and, and announced that the game was over, <laughs> and they were going home. <laughs> they broke up on the way home. Yeah. So if you're having any questions about your relationship, come to game night at the Gonzanos. We and gotcha. we'll We'll solve it for you. We will save you a lot of time. Also, you know, like, if you can do it between the hours of 3 and 6, Monday through Friday. We could do it here. <laughs> just put it on the air. We could just put these things out. Like, hey, if you are unsure, are unsure about your relationship and you don't want to end up years from now going, I wasted years. Yeah. We can handle that. We can provide that clarity for you. Simultaneously, Anna and I cannot play Scrabble against each other. That too. Because mm. it ends in a disagreement. Mm-hmm. Because Anna cheats at now, Scrabble. I do not oh. cheat. Oh. I do not cheat, Fire but emoji. one of us might wind up packing his bag That's and right. leaving a hotel room That's on foot. Damn right. Out of anger and frustration. No, out of wow. principle. False principle. accusations <laughs> against their partner. That was very early in the relationship, and <laughs> it was a principle. I took a stand, guys. Left the hotel room. I packed bag, my bag. Packed? I said, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. Went on oh, foot. My we With- were in Manzanita. In a hotel. I, I took a walk and I in the middle of the night. This was like midnight. He packed his bag and left the room. Principal. And I was like, "Where are you going? This this is before Uber or Lyft. 
I was like, what are you doing? And he was walking, walking you know, home, presumably. This is what? Hitchhike on Highway 101? Yeah, damn right. Uh, it, don't cheat at Scrabble. Um, I was not so, cheating. So, I play for points. Yeah. I play for triple and triple word scores and triple double, you know, letter mm -hmm. scores. And I kind of ugly up the game. Yeah. And you... Don't I don't, I don't like the way you play. Way. You play for length <laughs> unethical. of words. It was an unethical play that by you, and I made a statement about it. But here's how Man. here's how it went. Uh, I got out. I left the room. I packed my bag. I said, I'm, really not, I'm not playing Scrabble with you. And, in fact, I'm not spending another moment here <laughs> because you're cheating. And I left. I got about 10 yards outside the hotel. It was a little colder than I, rem I remember it being when I, I went into the hotel. I should have just let you go. I should have just let you go. I walked about a half a block, and Anna pulled up in her car, and she said, Come on! Get in the car. Get in the car. Can you imagine this scene? But My window rolled down. He's it was on like foot, a, stomping away. It was like a 1980s John Cusack movie. <laughs> so and, stupid. And oh then God. we both started laughing about oh. it because oh. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is a long walk back to the Portland metropolitan area. And we have not played Scrabble since. Can't do it. Can't do it. Are oh. you ready to play by the rules? If you're not. We can't play. Oh my I was going to get you bananagrams for Father's Day. But... <laughs> no, bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> but you learn each other, guys. That's what we're saying. When you play board games with us, you learn each other. I want you to leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up, bottom of the hour, we will play Punch It Audio. We got the best sound from all around. We've been talking about toughness. We've been talking about uh, the NBA Finals, Warriors and Celtics. Uh, I am eager to see what the Trailblazers are going to do this summer to get better. I am eager to see if the Major League Baseball to Portland effort can find some traction. I'm eager to see if Phil Knight is going to buy the Trailblazers. Uh, guys, Let's talk about the mysteries that face our sports region in the near future. For me, there are probably three things on my mind that are top of mind. When I, when I go to go, like, what is the most important question that get, needs to be answered in our region? One, I think it is Phil Knight and the Trailblazers. Will Phil Knight end up with the Trailblazers? Two, for me, is Dan Lanning in his first year at the University of Oregon as a head coach. First-time head coach, 35-year-old Dan Lanning. Uh, I spoke with him the other day, two days ago in the morning. Uh, got on the phone with Dan Lanning, and we were talking about this summer, how he is preparing. I'll tell you this. It is a nice, I guess, change of pace to hear a football coach at the University of Oregon tell me, I'm going to disappear at the beginning of July. He said that. I'm going to disappear because he said, I need to take some time with my family before I immerse myself in the college football season. That's different. That's different than the the Mario Cristobal act that we have seen for the last several years. Relentless, 4 o'clock in the morning, nobody's beating me to the office, I'm not taking time off, I went crabbing with the kids, back to football. Like, that was Mario Cristobal's summer. So Dan Lanning 
talking about being a normal human being in the summer. I'm okay with that. Third thing I'm wondering about is Jonathan Smith and Oregon State. I feel a little bit of urgency at Oregon State. Maybe because they are building the new west side of Research Stadium. Maybe because they just made a bowl game a year ago. Maybe because they know it's really important, like continuity is important. They want to build on getting to a bowl game last year. But I just feel a little bit of tension. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I just feel like they're a little more locked in at Oregon State right now than they have been in prior years. And it's just me saying that. Just my opinion, my read, my gut feeling. Jonathan Smith just feels a little more locked in for whatever reason. Judah, Sean, biggest question in your mind that needs to be answered. You just hit them all right on the head. Like I, you know, the first one that came to mind as you know, kind of a an Oregon guy is can Dan Lanning coach, and we're gonna get those answers very soon. So I'm super excited for this Oregon season. Also excited for the Oregon State season, but there's less question marks there. Blazers, I would love to know what the Blazers roster looks like in two to three years. Like it's just there's so many question marks on what they're going to do this offseason. I mean, this offseason is going to be critical. Are they going to rebuild? Is Dame going to be there in the next couple of seasons? Is Chauncey Billups there in the long run? Who the owner is going to be? I would love to get these answers, but it's going to take a couple of years to really figure out what the Blazers are about. And then also just, you know, you mentioned it, the MLB. Could we get a WNBA team? You know, you mentioned NHL, which I haven't really heard any rumblings about. Not sure that's happening anytime soon. So those are kind of the three things that are on my mind. I think with the right owner, you get somebody who goes, hey, we we probably should put an NHL team in Moda Center. Judah, what do you got? So for me, it's two kind of national things that I'm curious how they will play out locally. And by that, I mean uh, media rights. I'm fascinated by media rights and how all these major sports and how the NCAA is going to get distributed. And it's you can kind of get in the weeds with it, and you know, but it does affect the consumer. I mean, how you watch your stuff, how how much more media can you be, right? I mean, the Major League Soccer Apple deal was fascinating yes. to me this week, and look, that has ramifications locally. You know, with uh, local television for Portland Timbers broadcasts is gone starting next year. You know, everything's through Apple, and that means Major League Soccer and maybe a little bit of Apple influence has the call on who they're going to, you know, choose for talent. Like, that's – we know a lot of those guys, right? you got relationships with those guys. So that's got an immediate impact there. Um, and also the Pac-12. You know, how is George K going to navigate this? Everybody speaks highly of him. But the 2024, I believe, JC, media rights deal with, for the Pac-12 is certainly the – the crown jewel of, of what he can accomplish here. Uh, a good smart deal here sets us up for success and a bad one or a neutral one even kind of s- puts you on the back foot. So George K's role here is going to be massive. And then the NIL stuff and just everything about the NCAA with Mark Emmer eventually stepping down uh, next summer, I believe. How is that going to make its way into the Pac-12? How is it going to make its way into like Portland State's world as well? Just this, all this grand and scope reorganization of NCAA athletics. How's that all going to shake out locally? I think is fascinating. Yeah, I, I love that you went kind of inside baseball, football, soccer, whatnot. The MLS deal with Apple TV is interesting uh, on a number of fronts. It's a ten-year deal worth two and a half billion dollars. It'll start next season. All the MLS games will be broadcast on Apple TV+. Plus. This is a good deal in some ways for MLS. It's a bigger financial deal than they expected. 
It also gives the league uh, inventory that cord cutters, which I have to think they studied this. There has to be a high volume or a high percentage of their viewers who are cord cutters for them to like this deal. Uh, it also removes, as you mentioned, the local broadcast deals. They'll, they'll, they'll go with the NFL model, which is, hey, um, you know, 10 or 15 people will be calling all the games across the league. So they're going to have these crews of three or four that will be going and calling all the games or being at, be at a central location calling all the games. So this, uh, this will be much like the NFL or similar to the NFL, but you're going to lose the, broad, the local feel. And you're going to lose uh, these broadcast crews that are that are local are going to lose their jobs and if they can't hey, if they can't become part of the Apple TV deal. Apparently, none of the local crews were given any kind of heads up that this was happening. They found out they could be without a job the same way we all found out they could be without a job. So that wasn't great by MLS standards, but um, you know it's it has some drawbacks, but it. The benefit is the exposure, and the Pac-12 needs that. So I do think George Klyovkov is going to look at the Apple TV deal. I'm supposed to talk to him this week. It's not going to be a radio interview. It's going to be more of an interview that I talk with him, and then I write something at johnconzano.com. So if you are interested in that, I should have something on this Friday or Saturday. I'm going to ask him that. I'm going to ask him, like, hey, of course he's paying attention to this, but is this on the table, a deal with a carrier like this that could be all-inclusive and – cover the, all the conference games and maybe some other shoulder programming as well. I'll ask Klyovkov that. Coming up, we got uh, Punch It Audio. We got the best sound from all around. Leave it here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Tim Donahue interview. Sean and the team have produced it, and podcast is live and available. You can grab it wherever you get a podcast. We're going to play Punch It Audio here. Uh, the good people at Dutch Bros have extended an offer of a four-pack of tickets to Worlds of Sport this weekend at the Oregon Convention Center. It's all the great brands, all the great teams in one place, under one roof, 90,000 feet of sports Square feet of sports celebration. You can find out more at worldsofsport.com. Sean uh, is going to pick a winner. You can call in now at 503-417-7575 if you want to get a four-pack of tickets, courtesy of Dutch Bros. Uh, I hear Dutch Bros is going to be giving out uh, hydro flasks or some kind of uh, drink, fancy drink holder uh, at the event as well. So if you want to stop by and get one of those, stop by the Dutch Bros uh Space inside the convention center. Space, is that what we call it? The Dutch Bros activation inside the convention center. Call now, 503-417-7575. You get a four-pack of tickets for you and the family to go see Worlds of Sport, worldsofsport.com, if you're interested in that. Let's play some punch and audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. 
Tim Donahue, longtime official in the NBA, also former prison inmate, joined us in hour one to talk about officiating in the NBA, conspiracy theories and not. I asked him about star treatment of players. He says there's definitely star treatment, and here's how it goes down in the NBA. Punch it. You know, definitely star treatment was, uh, you know, a part of the game, but we used to talk about it in the locker room and at halftime and even during timeouts on the floor during the game when a, when a star player like LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan had two or three fouls. The last thing you want to do is call a foul to send him to the bench where, you know, people paid thousands of dollars to sit in that arena to come see that person. So with that being said, the last thing you want to do is call a foul on him uh, to send him to the bench. So we would talk about if there's another player in the vicinity of that star player, give that foul to that person so that he can stay in the game. It's a fantasy, this NBA that Tim Donahue talks about. I thought it was an interesting interview. Uh, I thought he's really candid. Uh, you know, he essentially lost everything. He also talked about Phil Mickelson. It's really interesting. He does believe Phil Mickelson has an issue with gambling. He knows some of the characters that Mickelson's involved with when it comes to gambling, and he doesn't like the look of it. Bill Simmons on his podcast talked a little bit about the Blazers organization. He went uh, he went out on a limb. He called Portland one of the least appealing GM jobs in the draft. Ryan Rosilio, Bill Simmons, punch it. Who do you have for your third pick? Portland. I don't think any Ooh. players want to go there. Ownership influx. If I'm hired now, I'm going to get fired by the new owners. I have a superstar that does, by all account, everything I've ever heard is that he likes being the guy and having everything catered to him. I don't know if he's going to feel that way with a bunch of draft picks. Um, so the one thing that I still have that I'm excited about, that's tenuous. And I think Portland, just on the whole, is not exactly like, I don't think NBA players are like, that's exactly where I want to live and hang out. Hey, Rosilio, this is uh, this is not your this is not your stable here. Okay, this is my job to criticize the Trailblazers, not your job. So I'm going to defend the Blazers a little bit here. It's not the Blazers' fault that Paul Allen owned them and passed away in 2018. It's not the Blazers' fault that the organization was put in a trust and that Jody Allen's got the keys to it and that she probably is not as engaged as ownership should be. It's not this organization's fault that uh, Portland is a small market playing in a league that favors large markets. Here's what Portland has going in its favor. I think it's a good team, a good franchise, potentially for the right owner. And if the right owner gets in that position, I don't think they're very far away from a couple of few moves that make them inherently better. And, if, and by good owner, I mean Phil Knight. Come on. Phil Knight ends up with this team. It's a different kind of free agent equation. It levels the playing field just a little bit because I do think he would instill some of the let's win now mindset that Nike has. Whether you like Nike or you hate Nike, you can't argue with the fact that Nike likes to win. Put that on your franchise and suddenly you're not one of the least appealing jobs in sports. Tom Brady was asked about unretiring. What was it? Was it the kids? Was it being home and being asked to take out the trash? Here's Brady. Punch it. Give me the day, the moment when you say to Giselle, I'm going back. Uh, you know, we had quite a bit of time together. Um, 
And I think mostly when I kind of told the team, look, like, you know, you guys got to make plans without me, you know, and then, you know, Jason and Bruce said, just give it time, you know, and I said, look, I, I, I feel pretty strongly, you know, and, and then, you know, time went by and then you just get super competitive, you know, and I think I'm part crazy. I mean, I think that's the reality. I mean, <laughs> 45 years old and I'm out here with a lot of young guys that are trying to take my head off and I see Aaron Donald work out on my Instagram I'm like damn maybe I should have retired <laughs> you know <laughs> because he's a beast um, but you know I had the appetite to compete and uh, it's going to be gone soon I mean there's no doubt about it and I gotta you know just really appreciate what the time I have left because it's not a lot I don't think he's going to lose the appetite I got news for him if he hasn't lost it already I don't think you're going to lose it Tom Brady but lucky for you, this isn't competitive eating that you're into. You can play this game for as long as this game will let you play, and Brady's playing it at a decent level, more than decent. He's good. He also talked about going into broadcasting. We'll talk about that in the final segment. It's really fascinating sound, but we'll talk about it coming up. Jalen Brown of the Celtics, he's not afraid of a game six at home against the Warriors. What is the mindset? Here's Jalen Brown. Punch it. Everything has been a learning experience. Um, we wear everything. We wear everything that we learn this year is like a, a badge of honor that we kind of wear. We don't let it hang over our heads. We bounce back. We've been able to respond well all year. Um, so um, we're looking forward to the challenge. We got to embrace it. it ain't, you know, ain't no other way around it. Um, last game on our home floor for to kind of embody our whole season. You know, we're looking to, to give it everything we got. Um, we don't. We are not scared. We do not fear um, the Golden State Warriors. We want to come out and just play the best version of basketball um, that we can. We know it's a good team over there. We know they've done it before, um, but we have all the belief in ourselves. So we're gonna come out and, and leave it all out there. That's the that's the whole intent. I think the Celtics are gonna win Game Six. I'm about 90% sure of that. I just think the Warriors will go, hey, we've got two here. The Celtics, backs against the wall. They're a competitive team. A lot of credit to Ime Yudoka. A lot of credit to Peyton Pritchard and his teammates. There's a lot of winners in that Celtics locker room. I don't think they'll roll over, and for that reason, I love them in game six. I think they win there. Mike Florio, talking Deshaun Watson. He believes Deshaun Watson will never clear his name. He already had I guess the criminal charges against him not come to fruition they did not bring criminal charges against him he's facing civil suits he's facing a growing number of plaintiffs Mike Florio punch it I think the Browns went into this with a very simple plan we're gonna take some short-term hits PR we're not gonna have him available for some period of time Long term, we have a franchise quarterback for the next 10 years. At some point, this is going to be no different than it was for Ben Roethlisberger, who got suspended six games, reduced to four. He had two complaints against him. They went to the Super Bowl that year that he served the suspension. Within a year or two, it was completely forgotten, like it had never even happened. And by the time he retires, you're an ass if you mention it. That's how deeply it faded into the rearview mirror. Well, that's not happening. It's getting worse, not better. He says he wants to clear his name. I don't think his name is ever getting cleared i agree with florio and i think it, the sad thing in cleveland i was reading an akron Be beacon journal story today about kevin stefanski who's the general manager excuse me the coach of the browns 
the the ownership of the Browns, Jimmy and D Haslam, this was their call. They they decided to bet on Deshaun Watson, and not only that, they gave him that contract. They traded for him. He was facing at that time 22 civil suits when they traded for him. 24 women have now filed suits. And they gave him that contract. They even met with him. Now they have kind of, I guess, disappeared into the shadows in Cleveland, and they've left Stefanski to be the only one to stand in front of a microphone. And he's having to spend all of his time as he is trying to prepare his team or his staff for training camp, OTAs, all that stuff. He's All he's talking about is Deshaun. Like... HBO Real Sports put him on camera. Uh, you know, local news, they, uh, they ask him over and over again, what, what is your plan? What happens? If he's not available, what happens? He's fending off questions every day, every time he steps in front of a microphone. It's not going away. He talked for 10 minutes at a news conference yesterday. 12 of the 24 questions were about Deshaun Watson. About six and a half minutes of his ten minutes were spent on Deshaun Watson. They better be ready like for the Jacoby Brissett era of Cleveland football. I think Deshaun is yeah, I think it's gonna be this is gonna be a lost season for the Haslam family and for the Browns. Tom Brady talking about broadcasting. I'll play his cut. What did he say about getting into broadcasting will it be enough for tom we'll talk about that and you'll hear his comments next back to the bald-faced truth with john canzano on 750 the game Brady headed to uh, the broadcast booth after his playing days, signed that big, big deal with Fox. Uh, he was asked uh, on the Dan Patrick show about going into broadcasting. Uh, Brady had comments on that, of course. Look, I've been in every production meeting for 22 years, you know, since the, when I started playing in 2001. I know what those guys are asking. I know what they're asked to do. And I think it feels very much like a team that goes on the road to prepare for a game. So there's a lot of learning curve. I mean, obviously, it's a it'll be a totally new career. Um, it's a new opportunity for me to try something that I'm going to work really hard to prepare to be as, as good as I possibly can be. Knowing that the day that I walk on the set for the first time won't be my finest moment. There'll be, you know, a lot of growing pains. And I'll have to learn to be really good at it. But I also think there's part of it that excites me is, I get to travel and be around football and be around people that, um, you know, I've, I've been around great mentors in my football career, you know, being blessed to get drafted by the Patriots. I was around one of the great owners in the history of the NFL, Mr. Kraft, one of the great, the greatest head coach in NFL history in, uh, you know, in Coach Belichick, Josh McDaniels, Charlie Weiss, Romeo Cornell. I mean, the list goes on with the coaches that I've been around, general managers, Jason Light, Scott Pioli. I get to be around players. You know, I had the best players 
you know, I was around best defensive players, offensive players. Um, you know, I've been covered by, by John Madden, you know, I've been at Super Bowl media days. I just, I've had so much experience and if I can help people along the way, you know, uh, by my travels and by talking to coaches and talking to players, you know, I've, I love the sport of, of football and I've, um, you know, I get to be in it. So I think that's what mostly I got excited about. And I think part of retiring for a very brief period of time was I got to explore a lot of other opportunities. Yeah, Tom Brady giving perspective. I don't think he really answers the question I want to know, though, because what I want to know is, is that going to be enough for him? Is it going to be enough to be in the broadcast booth? Is it going to be enough? I don't think it will be. Um, I, I also think, you know, part of that deal I noticed was not about broadcasting. Part of it was about business, cultivating business opportunities, and I think that might be the area where Fox intends to use him the most. Maybe they want to put him on camera. Maybe they don't. Maybe he's going to be happy with that. Maybe he's not. Maybe he won't take the full salary. I don't know what the contract looks like if he decides to back out of it. But I think part of this is they're going to trot Tom Brady out at sponsor events, and they're going to use him to grease the wheels when it comes to sales. Um, but I don't, I don't get my answer there. I love that Dan Patrick asked the question, but Brady, you know, you know, he did, he kind of sidestepped the question there because the question is, you know, is he ready for that? Is he will he ever be ready for that? I don't think he will. I don't think you can play at the level that, the competitive level that, you know, the guys who have the X factor, men and women both. I I wonder that we it came up earlier in the show we're talking about Serena and Venus. Is Serena Williams going to be able to play pickleball? down at the country club and just play a friendly game of pickleball. Hell no, she's not. She's, she's going to knock somebody on their back. Is uh, Michael Jordan capable of just playing a round of golf? No. We know he's not. He can't just go out and have fun and play a round of golf. So I don't think Tom Brady's going to go to the stadium and sit up in the booth and have a hot dog and a soda and talk about, you know, how great, you know, how great the next court, you know, how, how great is Trey Lance? In the 49er, in the 49er offense, he's not going to be able to do that. It's just not going to be in his nature. But I'm interested to see where it does end up. Peter Sampson in the Pulse coming up right here on 7:50, the game in Portland. For those of you listening on Fox Sports, Eugene, 10:50 a.m. Shout out to you, fist bump. Love that you're here. Appreciate the audience there in Roseburg as well on 14:90, the score, and uh, in Douglas County and at Klamath Falls on 9:60 a.m. The Bald Face Truth is not here for a long time, just a good time. Have a great night, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow with another great show.